Hello. Welcome back to This Is Not a History Lecture. And boy, oh boy, man, oh man, uh, the world has had a week, and Kat and I have also both had weeks. Yes. Um, So, it's a great way to kick off February. Yeah. We had a, (laughs) we were supposed to record two days ago, and I had a emotional breakdown. (laughs) As uh, warranted, if you're going to have an emotional breakdown about anything, that was it. That yeah. was it. And yeah. So, so don't feel bad about that one. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't feel bad. It was just like, oh, dang, we were supposed to record. Oh, well. <laughs> it happens. We it got happens. food instead. Yeah. Kat had to unfortunately make a very tough decision. Tough and big and hard. And life decisions usually are. But you know yeah. what? You come out better on the other side. Yeah. Absolutely. And it needed to be made. And yeah, it's, it's almost like you didn't make it. It's that yeah. the answer was given. To the answer you. was given to me and yeah. I get to adjust to yeah. it any way I will. And yeah. so fun times here in yeah. Yeah. the apartment. Yeah. Um, and sorry, if you hear my roommate's cats fighting in the background, I promise they're playing. One of them is just very dramatic. Um, but the yeah. world's also gone through well, it. This and then week. also me and yes. my dog, yeah oh was that only a week ago oh my yeah, gosh it was only you're last right. weekend yeah oh my gosh last weekend my dog kitty he had a stroke but he's i'm happy to say he's doing much better it was pretty scary there for a while and still a little scary but mm-hmm. it's, very, it's it's much much better and i'm very grateful that he's doing he's doing okay so that was, that was a lot my brain is thinking of that as like a month ago and i know it's not yeah you're right it was a week no. ago but dang it so was, much yeah is... it was last saturday so Whew. yeah and then of course big events in the world there's the earthquake in is it turkey and syria, syria. yeah mm-hmm. and that unfortunately killed many 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 people um and so but and that's, we, i think as of right now the death toll sitting above twenty thousand. Uh, the last I heard was 33,000. Oh my god. Yeah. Um so and it's likely to raise because they just don't have the infrastructure over there to handle that level of a natural disaster. Yeah. And of course that comes with, you know, emergency crews and just providing food and assistance to people. So that's really scary and we encourage everyone to like if you can find some good organizations to donate to. Mm-hmm. Um, another really big event that's going to affect a lot of people, I think, in a lot of ways that we don't even realize yet is the train derailment yes. in Palestine or Pal- Palestine. I don't know how they depends on where it. you are in America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not the yeah. actual country. Like, like, no, it, no, it's, no. Palestine, it's, Ohio. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, there is a Palestine, Texas, too, which is hilarious. And we call it Palestine. Palestine. But I, I heard someone on TikTok pronounce it like Palestine. So maybe that's how they pronounce it in Ohio. But I've even um, heard it. Some Texans pronounce ours Palestine. Palestine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it, a it's, a, it's a regional colloquialism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, however you pronounce the word, mm-hmm. um, there was a major train derailment in a major chemicals village. Um, and it's kind of frustrating because apparently a lot of the media is saying like, oh, nothing's wrong when clearly things are wrong. Yeah. Um, so it's just something that, you know, pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And international tensions yeah. continue to rise after some, we don't even know the full extent of. Okay, sorry. Brief thoughts for Beck. But yeah. International tensions continue to rise with whatever the heck's been going with American airspace and objects being shot down out of it and everything. And we don't even know. <sighs> and really, all of that really did happen this week. In the last it? week. Yeah. So there's, there's lots going on in the world that 
leaves much to be desired. Um, Jeez. It's like one of those things where it's like, no way this can be worse than last year. And then it just And then bam. Yeah. (laughs) So if you're affected by any of those things, our heart goes out to you. Um, And... And just hang in there. Yeah. I wish I could, you know, be there and do something about it. But it's hard when, one, I don't have a passport to get over to Turkey. And also, um, like, do you create more of a strain on the infrastructure? Exactly. Like, I would probably just get in the way. But it's like, it, it's time like these when you're like, I feel like I need to do something. You feel helpless. Yeah. yeah. So. So. Yeah. It seems cheap, but we are, you know, well wishes and all of that stuff. Yeah. But. Yeah. So it's been quite a week. Quite a week. Yeah. And here's hoping that next week is not, but who knows? We always on, say that. Knock on wood because. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. Anyway, with all of that, I think we should take some time to sell it. Well, I'm celebrating some of black history. Um, yeah. Are well, you? It's, I forget. It's are, a celebration. Doing? So I, I kind of ran with a theme yeah. that we talked about last okay, week a yeah. little bit. Sorry. I forgot about that. No, because I wasn't sure is, like, you fitting. did. No, it is. It fits in, but it's also black history because I was like, because that's. So anyway, if you listened to the last episode, you might have remembered me saying like, oh, cat, like remind me after the show, I have an idea to do like another theme right after this one. Um, because another major thing that's been in the news, at least in the U.S., is that Florida in mm-hmm. all of its lovely Florida wisdom, mm-hmm. um, specifically Ron DeSantis has uh made some moves to anyway Ron DeSantis what a guy uh he has not in a good way (laughs) yeah um he has made some interesting choices in regards to Florida's education and um there's been a lot I'm sure if you've heard anything about it that it's just like so far reaching that it's hard to even like put into words like what exactly is happening over there Mm -hmm. um I actually took some time and like did a little research on like what's going on over there. Oh, thank you. Um, so because I, as history people, it's really history that's being attacked, mm-hmm. and by Florida right now. So I felt like it was kind of important, um, to for us to talk about it a little bit. And uh, so our theme this week is like stuff that has been banned from being taught in Florida, um, just so we can like, you know, kind of stick true to that. Like, hey, we want to be as a resource for like. Mm-hmm people who might want to learn about things but can't for whatever reason Mm -hmm. so um this big bill that came into effect i believe it's either january 1st or february 1st anyway it got signed last summer and it really has okay it is february 1st no sorry it's not february 1st what i'll get to it i'm getting ahead of myself um it's this big bill by Ron DeSantis, and it's basically a vanity project. It's basically a bid to get votes. It's not based in, like, any sort of actual reality or whatever. But it's called the Stop Woke Act. Is that actually the name of it? That's the name of the bill. Of course, like, the actual legislation is, like, Act 324 or yeah, whatever, you but, know, but, like, the actual... Oh yep. So it's called the Stop Woke Act. And WOKE is actually an acronym. Of course. Of course it is. And it stands for... <laughs> wrongs to our kids and employees they wanted to use the word oak so they woke so they literally did whatever they could to use i know whatever words they could find that acronym no because that's like ron desantis's whole buzzword is woke these woke people we have to stop wokeness and it's like you sound like an idiot dude (laughs) um anyway 
So this act claims to stop the, quote, wrongs committed through the education of critical race theory and critical race theory based education. Um, And this is in schools and in employment uh, things. So um, obviously any mention or anything related to CRT in schools, which is literally just the belief that racism is institutionalized in our country. That's honestly all yeah critical race theory that there's is a boiled systemic down to, that there's a historic but yeah and which obviously you guys know what side of that argument we're on <laughs> we literally talk about systemic racism yeah. because history is full of it history Absolutely. is the backdrop yeah for and this what, is why yeah. i thought because it is so recent i thought like you know instead of waiting for like a next theme episode which is five weeks from last week mm-hmm. i was like let's go ahead and talk about this and it's like a very loose theme so it's not you know um <clears throat> and anyway I, I do want to take a quick moment to note that we're not being hypocritical as texans because texas did ban more books last year than any other state in the u.s including yeah. florida but florida's is most recent and theirs comes with charges that are outlandish if yeah you break this texas rule. is number one and i do have a bullet for that texas okay. is number one in book banning um florida's number two mm-hmm. so that's something and we definitely need to take that into consideration because again book burning is one of the first steps in a very dangerous <laughs> dangerous path um yeah i did a whole episode on that too if yeah you go but, find it yeah um what makes what's happening in florida so scary is as kat mentioned teachers can face actual felony charges mm-hmm. for presenting those books to the classroom and it's not like controversial books that you're like okay i can see where that got banned you know like one i saw one article that was like the entire um court of thorns and roses series is, is banned and mm-hmm. i'm like okay yeah like i get that that's not got like stuff there it. is it's not pornographic material yeah. in that like i can see where schools would not want that that makes sense to me but like it's stuff like some of the books especially in elementary school there's are children's like books children's banned. books about like how to love your natural hair and like how to love all of your friends. And And it's very, if you look at that list, it's very obvious from the titles of those books alone that they are targeted to help and support and educate people about Mm -hmm. minorities. Absolutely. And you know, any group of minorities too. And it's just so, it's so clearly motivated by racism. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, which is what, and again, Texas definitely has probably all the same ones banned too. Mm-hmm. And if not more, <laughs> if not more, um, actually we know for a fact more, but yes. the, the felony charges and how kind of insane this is, is really what makes it really scary. Mm-hmm. And I've, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard it's not only for having, if you have a banned book in your classroom, it can be a felony. But if you have a book that is unapproved. Yeah. It's like, so teachers are, I don't know if every district is doing this, but I have heard several accounts that like a lot of districts are having to send the books they have in their classroom, which if you're an elementary teacher, you usually have a class library, you know, which is a lot of books Yeah, and they have to be individually approved by some government agency. Mm -hmm. And like, who is setting these parameters? What are they looking for? Like, Mm -hmm. And so, like, Florida teachers are yeah. taking pictures of, like, empty bookshelves and being like, hey, this yeah. is what we're yeah. dealing with right now. Yeah. And it's not just the public schools, like K-12. It's actually affecting public universities. So public mm-hmm. universities in Florida are, and, like, professors and stuff are also being restricted from educating people on things like critical race theory and, like, queer history and all of these things that Florida has you know just deemed inappropriate and for any university level court i mean it should be taught in all in all educational spaces but especially 
college level like yeah upper upper level education like At this that should point, be like, an that undebatable person, point yeah. of your content that you're learning well absolutely and at that point that person is an adult and should be able to if they want to opt into those courses yes and And, i mean as a history student you choose which courses you take there are some that like i don't know if it's the same at every university but ours you are required to take like a world history a certain history like certain kinds of history but you had parameters you had multiple to choose from right so like they're not saying you have to take a course on well and that it just is so bizarre to me that public university professors are being punished like they also can face felony charges if they are found teaching things that the state of florida doesn't deem appropriate and one that devalues the product like the quality of your education and your public universities are just de facto devalued by that Mm -hmm. um and i'd be interested to see if like accreditation wise there's any effect on that that's interesting um i don't know if there would be but there should be um it also it says a lot to me. Well, and then and, and it also goes back to the these are adults. Like if yes. you want to argue and be like our children are being like they're forced to learn this stuff. Like let an adult make a choice to choose that class and take mm-hmm. it and give them that choice. It's just so like it's also very interesting to me because like politicians are making these decisions and they come from a variety of different backgrounds and educations and I'm not saying that people who didn't attend like a college or university should not have a place in politics. They do. Everyone, every every demographic deserves to be represented in our democracy. But if the people at the forefront of their field have come to a consensus, if you're saying that all colleges and universities are indoctrinating with liberal ideas, you shouldn't be thinking, oh, they're all liberal because they're a university. You should say, oh, all the people who are experts on their subject are saying something, mm-hmm. therefore we should acknowledge it. It's like yeah. every scientist saying, hey, this theory is correct. It yeah. should become a law. And then saying like, no, I, I've i never been to school there before or never trained mm-hmm. in this topic, but you shouldn't say that. Like, right. y- history is the same thing. You need to be listening to the professionals yeah. in your topics. And if every professional, if every university, if every accredited place is saying, hey, there's a basis for CRT. There is a need for this in our mm-hmm. schools. You should be listening to them. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that comes back to because another big part of this big Florida ban was so College Board, um, who is the board that does all of the advanced placement courses in the United States. um, So like your AP classes, if you're from the U.S., you're probably pretty familiar with what that is. But if you're outside of the U.S. um, or you didn't take like a traditional U.S. high school route, it's essentially what it sounds like. It's advanced placement courses in high school. Mm -hmm. And so they'll do like you'll have your on-level like U.S. history class and then you'll have your advanced placement U.S. history class. And if you take these classes and score high enough on the test, you get college credit very often. Yes, yeah. Um, and so at the end of the year, there's a big test and if you, like like had said, you get college credit at a lot of universities. So College Board, um, they have a pretty broad range of subjects that they offer classes mm-hmm. in. Um, a lot of, uh, pretty much all of your core subjects once you get to a certain uh, grade level in high school. Um, but they also have a lot of electives. And one elective that they had been toying around with and like working on the curriculum for was their um, AP African American Studies course. And they were getting ready to launch it, I believe, probably this next school year. Um and Florida with the ban threw a fit about it because it didn't like a lot of what it had to teach in it. Because of course they're all up in arms about this whole stop woke thing is about critical race theory. And so anything that can be kind of construed as critical race theory, they are not allowing in their education system. So this includes things like 
the Black Lives Matter movement, mass incarceration, police brutality, queer black history, black power movements, um, including like so many like basic civil rights vital yeah like black authors like angela davis Mm -hmm. C. coates um kimberly crenshaw robin d kelly and then i think bell hooks yeah bell hooks i think lord's on that list too right Uh, audrey lord like these absolutely essential like key markers of black history morrison's band too yeah tony morrison and it's just it's very thinly veiled racism it's Mm -hmm. not even veiled it's like veiled with like a piece of uh it is a disproportionate amount of minorities that you look at it like like i said reading the kids books it was everything from asian authors to like the thing going back to like an ap course an ap mm -hmm. course is supposed to be that next level of challenge yes and presumably these people who are taking this course would have already taken an AP U.S. history yes. course. So they already know an AP level look at like the civil rights movement. So mm-hmm. they want that deeper element. And if you can't have that deeper element without getting into some of these waters, you cannot talk about the civil rights movement without talking about Black Panthers yes. in an advanced placement course. Like you cannot do that. And so, well, and that's and that's the difference between I, I think a high school and college class because I didn't like history till I got to college. Like I was good at it in high school, yeah. you know. It's it's like, but it's presented often on level as dates and events and a little bit of analytics. But like once you hit that higher level, it is all about analyzing the actual histories, like and in questioning them really is what it is. And so not allowing anyone to question anything removes the purpose yeah. of higher level yeah. history and even sociology, geography, everything. Like Well and then like you are ultimately preventing any sort of higher level thing yeah. to happen about this in by censoring all of this is like literally kind of just the next level deeper past your civil rights movement. Yeah. Like, that is literally just, like, you know, in the iceberg memes, it's, like, tip civil rights. That next one down, you're not even under the surface yet. Oh, yeah. Is what is being banned in Florida. The frustrating thing is, is, and there's kind of two sides of this that I see, is that College Board has chosen to remove the things that Florida did not like from its curriculum as a whole in this advanced placement African-American studies Mm -hmm. course. So not just for the people in Florida. For the entire United States, they're not offering some of the subjects that Florida is throwing a fit about. And I, obviously, that's a very disappointing choice mm-hmm. by College Board. I guess they're trying to make sure that, like, their curriculum is standardized throughout the country. And it does kind of get into the discussion of, is it worse to just remove those things and offer it anyway mm-hmm. or not offer it at all? My question is, are they are they folding on this because they're like, oh... Florida schools are going to ban it and we want their money. So we have to make it palatable for them so that we can continue paying good tests or students. I mean, or money, is it like a, is it a broader or more? I don't think it's, I mean, money is probably definitely a factor College board of makes it. so much money in this money country. Money is definitely, but like when you are a national organization that's supposed to be giving children or high schoolers the ability to offer college credit and mm-hmm. you want colleges to accept that credit like it's many colleges that's you kind of have to standardize your curriculum in that way that's very true because you can't have the you can't have on university websites like oh you qualify for this credit with this you know score mm-hmm. on on this ap test except for people in florida you yeah. know like yeah that's true so it's it's frustrating it's frustrating that florida's doing this to begin with but it's frustrating to see a an organization with as much clout as college board have kind of fold to that pressure. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I was reading a Guardian article about this, and there's um, a quote that I really like that I pulled from there um, that says, quote, We cannot change history by censoring it. We cannot pretend that we were never a slaveholding society, that racism ceased to exist when Abraham Lincoln in- issued the Emancipation Proclamation. We cannot erase the past or influence a young person's gender and sexuality by removing a book from the library. Students are not political pawns or ideologues in training. They are our future, and it is frightening to imagine a future populated by citizens who were forbidden to argue and debate, to hear about a historical event from multiple perspectives, and to learn and to learn to make critical judgments and necessary distinctions that will help them navigate our increasingly complex and challenging world. And that is very true. That's very well said. Yeah. Like, students deserve that opportunity. Also, another thing that this article brought up is that these kids still live in the world that is created by the things that Florida is trying to ignore. Right. Can you imagine what that must do to a child's education when you look around and you see obvious effects of these mm-hmm. things that teachers are not allowed to say? Yeah. And you're kind of, it's like you're being gaslit. It's, isola- it's yeah. isolating and it's gas. Yeah. It's yeah. very, it's very gaslighting. Like, yeah. and that's, I've heard that discussion too about like, not to take attention away from the struggle that minorities are facing, but also about queer history. Well, queer is a minority. In the South. Yeah. Uh, like, I just don't want to, like, equate the two because it's very different struggles. But, like... Yeah, but it's still a minority group. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, like, I've seen a lot of that discussion about queer history in the South, too, mm-hmm. about, like, the inability to talk about it. It doesn't just not talk about it. It it makes people think that it's it doesn't normalize it. And right. normalizing things is very important because you're not going to change someone's sexual orientation or their skin color but you can teach them that they have their own history and their own place in the world whatever it used to be they're still members of society Mm -hmm. that exist and can be acknowledged absolutely um also i didn't know this until i was reading some of the articles about this but ron DeSantis himself went to yale guess what his degree is in i'm going to want to die when i hear this aren't i you know what it is is it no no. This man has a degree in history no. from Yale. No. He has a degree in history. From Yale. From Yale University. I refuse to believe that. I refuse to believe that anyone with a degree from a school of that caliber can You know what so I think ignorant. it is? I think he heard some things that he did not like because they made him feel bad as a white person. Well, that's the majority of what I hear when I hear conservatives speaking out against CRT and and stuff. That's exactly what every discussion is. It's like, I don't want people to feel bad because their ancestors did this. And I'm like, that's not the discussion we're having. No, I was looking into specifically what some of the bill says. And I left out um, that part of it because it's like some legalese. And I was like, I'm not going to bother to try to like come through it. But one of the things was basically saying that nothing can be taught that makes one person from a race or gender feel bad about what previous yes. individuals did in the same race or gender. And that's what I keep hearing from conservatives mm-hmm. is like, you can't oh, even, you're, you're going to make some white kid feel bad because his ancestors had slaves. And I'm like, no, I'm not calling the child a slaveholder. Yeah. I'm trying to explain to him. Yeah. This is what our ancestors did. Yeah. And we are yeah. responsible for undoing the systemic issues yeah. that are still left behind. And I saw a tweet about it and it was like, if white or if black kids are young enough to experience racism, then white kids are young enough yes. to to read about it. Yes. And I think that's absolutely true. Because again, it doesn't just go away yeah. if you stop talking about it. Yeah. In fact, it makes it worse. Yeah. So anyway, the final thing I want to close on in this little discussion, and then I'll let Kat go. Um, but all of this is just to say, this is why we felt like it was important to talk about this this week. Mm-hmm. Um, but... <clears throat> 
quote, students aren't as stupid as the floor. And this is from the Our Guardian article. Students aren't as stupid as a Florida legislator seems to think. By adopting these new regulations, we are only encouraging them to distrust their teachers and the system that so blatantly re- misrepresents the realities that they so clearly observe around them. So I like that. And yeah. I've, I've found in a lot of really influential people in certain conservative circles right now, they don't even wholeheartedly believe that stuff themselves. No, they're it's saying it for it's cloud. Ways they're to get saying votes. it. Yeah, and, and it it's a Donald Trump effect. Yeah. The further you can take your hardline issues, mm-hmm. the more people are going to rally behind you. And that's what I saw a lot of articles about this whole Stop Woke Act. Um, was it's basically just Ron DeSantis' vanity project, and it's his, it's mm-hmm. it's a big vying to get votes because it's no secret that there's going to be another presidential election pretty soon here, <laughs> yeah. and Ron DeSantis is definitely going to throw his hat in the ring. I've heard, I've Um, heard a thing about like the amount he's been campaigning. I think it was him that one of like the national watchdogs is like, Hey, you have like a certain, a limited amount of days because of how much money you've gotten Mm. to announce your candidacy. Otherwise Mm. like you have to. And I think there's some tension between like him and Trump right now, because like those two are definitely going to be the big Republican candidates. They're fighting for the, the, the conservative, like the, the the far right conservative vote and stuff like this is their kind of yeah. last last ditch attempt to get that huge yeah it's a vote. it's 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 campaigning without campaigning it's you know yeah so anyway as a history podcast uh, we felt that it was really important to take the time to discuss all of what's happening in Florida and while this seems like one of the most severe bans there are bans in a lot of states at the moment there's um, I think it's Education Weekly has like a running map of like all the states that have either on the books legislation or are voting on legislation to prevent education on critical race theory. Um, So wherever you are, I would recommend kind of looking into that, Um, especially if you have kids in school right now. uh, That's it's it's scary. uh, Unfortunately, we do have to kind of take our matters into our own hands at some point. Um, And yeah. So wow. Yeah. You have anything else to say about that cat? Not really, just that if you want, like, a look at the history of book burning, we've got an episode that came out in February of last year. Oh, my gosh. It came out on February 15th last year, exactly (laughs) a year ago. Wow. (laughs) That's funny. That's irony. Well, 364 days ago. um, It's episode 54. Oh, man, this episode's going to come out on the 14th, not on the So it's a day later, um, but a year, (laughs) almost exactly exactly. a year apart. Wow. Yeah. Life is cyclical. Yeah. but that one covers a little bit. It's like a brief cover of some of the big instances of huge book burning in the past. Um, mm. And book burning and book banning are two different things, but they also are very similar things. So yeah. Um, yeah. it's good to know about. Um, and like Cal said, we're kind of, we both kind of took our topics from what's going on right now. Yeah. So essentially what I proposed last week was that we both pick one topic that has been banned or would be banned from mm-hmm. being taught in Florida. Um, and so that's what we're doing today. Yes. So I, you texted me what you're going to do and I forgot about it as normal. So go for it. Kat. Okay. So I chose my topic because it's linked through, it's about voter discrimination. It is about mm-hmm. racism and it's also about felony charges because I felt like that was very apt seeing that there are now teachers that could face felony charges for having books in the room that aren't even bad. They're just not approved. Mm-hmm. Um, but cause in America, depending on the state you are in a felony charge prevents you from voting. Mm-hmm. So what's scary about this is that if you were to round up all the teachers who, and this is teachers, these laws are so 
broad that there's a lot of interpretation in them you know yeah. is is the book you have in your classroom that wasn't approved by whatever board is it the one you were reading on your lunch break and you just forgot and set it on your desk and a student saw it is it one that you left on your bookshelf on accident you know and like how many teachers if you were really going to attempt to finagle your way around the law could you charge with a felony also teachers like they already do so much. Why would you make this harder on them? I know. And there's already like a national teacher shortage. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, so um, it's very scary because you think about how many teachers, if they were looking to try and charge as many of them with a felony as they could, how many could you disenfranchise from the voting process? Mm-hmm. Um, it depends, again, on the state. But taking away someone's ability to vote when this country is supposedly considered a democracy, mm-hmm. it's a very questionable thing. And especially when you look at, I'm sure you'll get into this, but how disproportionately mm-hmm. some groups are affected by felony charges than others. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so that's kind of where I took my inspiration. So I took it back to about 100 or so years ago in America. And we're going to talk today about grandfather clauses. Oh, that's right. Okay, yes. Yeah. Um, and... Again, I'd like to remind people, as we often do when we're talking about civil rights and how the Civil War really didn't end slavery, that we are only a couple generations away from this. This is a recent issue. This is not something we can pretend just went away. Like, our grandparents knew, would have known people that were born in, like, if you're looking at, like, early, early grandparents stuff, Mm -hmm. they would know people who their grandparents were, like, actually enslaved. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a long gap. So I just challenge you to keep that in mind, that this is not a long-removed issue. Right. It is very recent. Yeah. Um, so grandfather clause has been largely reappropriated to mean, as, as in the words of an NPR article I found that said it very well, it's an easy way to describe individuals or companies who get to keep operating under an existing set of expectations with when new rules are put into place. So... Think of it like um, if there was a law that said all new entertainment restaurants have to serve um, hamburgers, but we're going to grandfather in all the Chuck E. Cheeses and they can keep serving pizza. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that. Like because you are something already existed that did that, you are exempt from the law. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chuck E. Cheese would then be able to keep selling pizza. Everyone else, every new one would just have to sell hamburgers. Mm-hmm. Um, but this term is actually, while it's been largely reappropriated, it's largely based in racial history. Um, it goes back to basically an attempt to restrict voter practices as part of a larger attempt to deny suffrage in any way that they, that Americans could to African Americans and minorities that, uh, they didn't want voting for a specific party. Mm -hmm. They were active in over half a dozen states, roughly between the years of 1895-ish and 1910, although some of them were not removed or challenged in court until much later. So I know that's a little confusing when it gets to like laws and voting and stuff, so we're going to dig right in. Um, mm-hmm. Let's deconstruct this one, um, keeping in mind that the term grandfather clause, again, has been reappropriated. You see it pop up in TV shows, and I think I've said it before before i realized like yeah because i was always like oh it's got to be an old term because it's sensically like it makes sense i figured it was a much older term than that but the origin really is the voting law yeah yeah i so i actually 
I remember learning about this in high school, so I've known a little bit about mm-hmm. what this is. So I've always kind of understood what the term means, but mm-hmm. I totally get where if you like didn't, you're like, oh yeah, you just say that, and well, that's what that means. Yeah, it's and everyone's always grandfathers had- are usually old men, so that makes sense. Old. The people who are doing this have been doing it for a long time, so grandfathered in. Like, that yeah. makes sense. You yeah. Know, like, that. So, I figured it was a, I'm connecting the dots. I figured <laughs> it was a term from, like, the 1600s that right. just got used for these voting laws, but it originated with the voting laws. So, yeah. I was like, oh, time to cut this one from my vocabulary. Um, so... On February third, well, I don't think you you don't think you have to take it out of your vocabulary. I feel There's, like I just want to find a better term, personally. I mean, people know what you mean. Yeah, but I feel like there's a better like people. I'm I can't say whether or not people should keep using it. I'm just I yeah. feel like for me, there's a better way to describe what I'm thinking sometimes. Well, it's such like the grandfather law or clause is so such a succinct thing. It is that it's not like you can it, it kind of that oh they got grandfathered in is mm-hmm. just what that means now yeah well and that's kind of what the npr article is saying like yeah no one notices it because it is so widely used. yeah so i don't really think other other than you taking the time to explain oh well they get to do it because they've always done it mm-hmm. there's not like another way to really say that because that's just the term for it that's true you it's, know what i mean yeah like yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And since the phrase itself doesn't have anything inherently, like, racist in it, it's kind of, like... Yeah. You know, and I could be wrong. And again, like you said, I can't speak for anything. But I think that would be... Because it's just know. what it means now. Yeah. It has know? it has become... You're right. It's very... Ubiquitous is a good word. But yeah, yeah. like... Yeah. It's, it's a hard term because I've tried to cut some things from my vocabulary that I learned i was like oh that's like blatantly racist you know yeah and yeah. this is one of those things it's like it doesn't have like any like actually racist words but i'm like not sure if there's another word i could find that might be better because i don't think is, well i don't I'd think like there to. is okay yeah yeah i just think that's one of those things yeah you know it is a very yeah you're right it's it's there's not many other words that describe it so efficiently yeah yeah so february 3rd of 1870 the 15th amendment is ratified theoretically the 15th amendment Mm -hmm. says that you can't be discriminated against to vote on the basis of your race Mm -hmm. uh it says that the right of citizens of the united states to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the united states or by any state please note it says united states or by any state Mm -hmm. on account of race color or previous condition of servitude there should not be a question for anyone about what that means but alas as we talked about with the freedom riders last week it's one thing for the federal government to say something and then it's another Mm -hmm. thing for the individual states to follow it even if they were directly called out in it they still do what they want um and people in the south tend to just look the other way and do their own thing i'm not saying it wasn't going on in the north as well because we'll talk a little bit later about how there were other grandfather clauses Mm-hmm. in the north for different reasons um but this is definitely a more notable problem in the south um we don't see a real effort to undo a lot of these laws until the later like 1900s um and now that we've talked about crt already in this episode um mm-hmm. it's we should note that there are still things designed to keep people away from the ballot boxes like jail time and felonies Mm -hmm. that disproportionately, like Cal said, affect people in minority, um, like the criminalization of marijuana, crack versus cocaine charges. Absolutely. Yep. Um, that 
often they are targeted attacks against minorities. Again, we say it every single episode that we talk about the criminalization of drugs and stuff, but please go watch 13th. It's on Netflix. Mm -hmm. I know that a lot of us canceled Netflix subscriptions, but I recommend finding it somewhere. It's a very good documentary to understand just how disproportionately and targeted these attempts are. So we still have not gotten over this whole um, 15th Amendment actually being like instituted uh, yeah, purely it in be. its raw yeah. form. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's also, it's called 13th because it's also about the 13th Amendment, but yeah. go watch that documentary. It's a good so way good. to remember those for those of you who might need to be remembering them for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, the post-war, post-Civil War amendments are 13, 14, 15, mm-hmm. free citizens vote. So mm-hmm. the 13th Amendment frees the slaves. Mm-hmm. 14th Amendment makes at least male, former slaves citizens. Mm-hmm. And then the 15th, as you just mentioned, is what gives them the right to vote. Yes. I shouldn't even have to say it, but damn, we did. Um, (laughs) So post-war, we look at the actual kind of, not scenery, what's the word I'm looking for? The landscape around the voting Mm -hmm. boxes. And there are so many ways that African-American people and uh, previously enslaved people are kept from voting. Um, They don't even have to be direct or blatant. Yes, there are plenty of people who turned african-americans and freed people away from ballot boxes just blatantly like no no trying to hide that they were just racist they're like yeah we just don't let you vote Mm -hmm. um but there are literacy tests that you yep that's one of those things it's like i know it's bad it's gonna be racist every time you do it Mm -hmm. but god it's gonna be racist it's gonna be class it's gonna be everything yeah you're gonna do everything you can but it's like i wish that there was a way that they worked because i do think that it's you know, valid to have, like, if you're going to offer your opinion on votes, then you should kind of know what they're talking about, you know, especially because the way that especially legislation is worded at the polls is a lot of times to intentionally confuse voters on what that's saying. Oh, you're saying like, make sure that we offer everyone a free enough education to be to able understand to, to understand what's going on. Vote. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, and not like having a literacy vote requirement like you have to be able to read the dictionary yeah that that's going to be racist every time it's going to be racist it's going to be class it's going to be everything but like god i wish there was a way to have that happen Mm -hmm. so that people are informed on what they're going in to vote about you know what i mean part of the reason we have public schools too like and that's why whenever well yeah yeah, like that whole discussion around like do you people who are like i wish my taxes didn't go to school and everyone's like do you want to live in a world where public school is not offered where people are able to like contribute to society without going to school. Like public schools are great. We should be funding public schools. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, you're right. Public schools allow us to be educated about the world we live in and the society we are contributing to. But literacy tests in themselves at the early polls were very much targeted in a bad way to uh freed people literally accessory don't get me wrong i know that literally they're bad every time they're bad you cannot do them well yeah but i almost wish there was a way just to make sure that like we're all on the same foot and we all know what all of this means i almost wish like everyone who votes is required to like sit down and ingest in some form the debates that are had, the presidential debates, whether, you know, whatever your um, limitations are, whether it's reading, seeing, hearing, Mm -hmm. like you should have access and be educated and be paying attention. You shouldn't just vote because hype on social media or something tells you to, but But there's no way to do it without it being racist. Yeah. 
So we're not going to do it. Um, So literacy tests in this time period are so pointedly racist because guess who was not allowed to go to school Mm -hmm. and then is expected to pass literacy tests in order to vote? It's every single enslaved person, pretty much. Very few people who were enslaved had access to education and even then the education was most often a more rudimentary form of like reading and writing um Mm -hmm. so it puts them at a huge disadvantage so if you're even allowed into the voting into the polls if there was a literacy test it's very likely that you wouldn't be able to past the level of test that was there and also education is a generational issue if you know you don't have you know parents that have access to education oh if you don't have parents that have access to education it's it is statistically not impossible but it does it does correlate to a disadvantage that some children have Mm -hmm. um and it's not i'm not saying that you know parents inherently cannot supply for their children it's just more difficult to have well, access sometimes when you are because a lot of especially that early education like learning how to read learning how to write happens, happens outside of the classroom yeah and if your parents don't know how to read or write you're already at a disadvantage right you know and so this is a multi-generational issue mm-hmm. um it's not going to get fixed you know every 50 years we're going to be able to oh literacy tests are fine now because everyone can read now you no know? yeah so that's a long-standing attempt to keep people away from the voter boxes. There's also voter intimidation. Mm-hmm. When we talked about Birth of a Nation a few weeks ago, there's we talked about those scenes where people straight up tried to like line up outside of the polling booths to try and intimidate each other away from breaking that barrier and walking in to cast their ballot. Yeah. Um, and that's not just a scene from that movie that happened in real life. Yeah. KKK people yeah. or like extremist groups just would block yeah. people from getting into the polls. There's a, especially with this last election with all of the paranoia around voter mm-hmm. fraud, there was some like examples of just straight up voter intimidation happening. And it was kind of terrifying to see and it, it's still like there's a lot of stuff today that is affected by those laws against that because like you can't wear a political shirt going to the polls or you're not yeah. supposed to. Yeah. Even though I will say I saw a Make America Great Again shirt voting um, in the midterms. Texas. Yeah. It, well, it's the midterm, so it's not like that candidate was up for anything. Yeah. So it's probably that like caveat, but it's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah. Um, especially in Texas, where there were instances of people at polling places with guns, guns like large, yeah, like just sitting weapons. out in like their truck for for no reason other than to, to intimidate. intimidate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you, know, you can tell them, oh, you have to be five hundred yards or whatever away from the polling place. But mm-hmm. like, it's hard not to feel like an inkling of like what is happening like i yeah. am not safe yeah nor are my opinions so well that's the that's is, the point is yeah. that you're not supposed to feel safe yeah. yeah and so um there i mean to this day there are so many forms of voter intimidation and just manipulation like um certain polling places that try to close on certain days because certain days are the ones when mm-hmm. in our community i noted this that there was there are churches, predominantly African-American churches in our community, that would take groups of people. They would, like, shuttle them mm-hmm. to polling places because they wanted to be able people who don't have cars and stuff to be able to go. And there were yeah. attempts from 
other people to make sure that those on those days polling places weren't open. And it's the same discussion yeah. for early voting because not everyone, if you're, yeah. if you've got, it happened in Houston too, where it was like suspiciously all of, and there's actually for the midterms, at least uh, all of, there's been like a, an investigation in Houston specifically because mm-hmm. a lot of the, um, Oh, I remember that the early a voting lot of was the, like so full. Yeah. A lot of the early voting places in low income neighborhoods were suspiciously not open. Mm-hmm. And, and those are like, people who are more likely to, well, they need to, because also America does not. Yeah. America does not offer a holiday for like voting yeah. like a lot of other places do. Yeah. No, they're like, yeah, figure it out. Yeah. And they use it to their advantage because you know, who is free to go vote whenever they can upper retired people, people. And upper class people, and upper who, class tend people be... who tend to be more conservative. Mm hmm. So, so there's, there's some very obvious distortion there. Yeah. There's also at this time, immediately after the civil war, there's government law, like law tests, like constitutional tests where you had to be able to write out the part of the constitution that applied to mm-hmm. your state. So yeah. like, not only do you have to be able to read, they're saying you have to be able to legibly write out part of the constitution. I can only recite certain parts of the constitution and declaration. Like, right. And yeah. I'm a history student who was told to memorize them. Like right. you can't expect the average person to do that. Also there's no internet. Yeah. They're not going to be able to like just Google like yeah. what, what, what does part the, constitution of the constitution say? Yeah. yeah. Um, also poll taxes that literally were just taxes that you had to pay mm-hmm. to be able to vote, which is absolutely ridiculous and not part of a democratic society. That's literally becomes what, what would that be? An oligarchy? No, that's I, religious. No, that's religious. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know. What's the one when it's like all rich people, a rich person, <sighs> a rich person society. <laughs> um, and like, if you were a, as, as many African American people were relegated to tenant farming mm-hmm. because, you know, you don't have money, but you know what you have is a person who used to enslave you saying, hey, if you keep working on this land, I won't kick you off. And they give you basically nothing. And you're it's a second form of slavery. But, you know, that's all you have. And if that you're pre, if that person, if that white person found out that you voted they could fire you and kick you off your land. Mm-hmm. So it's also up to your so-called boss, whether or not you could vote without losing your job. Like mm-hmm. there's so many things in place um, that were preventing m- minorities from voting after the civil war. These are all mm-hmm. examples of it. And I will point out here that this doesn't just hurt minorities, African-Americans and freed people, but there is a group of lower income white people that are hindered by this, um, people that don't have access to education or money. Yeah. So what's the most effective way to keep freed people subjected to these laws, but not the white people? You grandfather them in. Mm-hmm. So they were so scared of disenfranchising these white lower class voters that they were like, well, we'll literally just create a law that says like, hey, you guys can vote because your grandfathers did. And this is kind of where we start getting that grandfather clause. The best, and I mean, sadly, it is effective because they were like, how can we directly just make it about your lineage and race and mm-hmm. not about your actual qualifications? So in seven states, men, not women, men were told that they could vote if they had been able to vote before these uh, restrictions and intimidations and everything were made. Essentially, that puts it around, like, 1867. So 
if you could vote before 1867-ish, you can vote now. Um, a lot of these laws are passed in the 1890s, too. So they're like, oh, that's a little bit far behind. So maybe we need to say that if your grandfather could vote, you mm-hmm. can also vote. Mm-hmm. States to enact this first were, of course, Southern, uh, like Louisiana, um, in, in this way. There were other voter grandfather restrictions in some northern states mm-hmm. but we see this particular one in places like louisiana first and if you're thinking this makes like no sense you would be very correct grandfather clauses like do not make sense at all yeah, they're no. very hard to enforce well it's that thing we say all the time too racism doesn't make sense it, yeah like, it, it's it a just, walk around yeah they're doing everything they can Mm-hmm. And it never makes sense, but it doesn't need to because it's racist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can see immediately the effects as white people who under these things like poll taxes and literary tests couldn't have voted are suddenly like, oh, well, my grandfather did before this law was passed. So like, I'm, I'm good. Mm-hmm. And again, things like literacy are also a generational struggle. So they're like African-American and freed people are like, this is this is still not like I still can't vote. This is ridiculous. So it's, it's really the most convoluted attempt. Like not only did they like make the most ridiculous laws on why people couldn't vote, but they tried to give excuses to people who they wanted to vote, but were Mm -hmm. restricted to vote. It's really the biggest go around. I think I'd ever seen. Um, but this is a very obviously questionable constitutional issue. Lawmakers even admitted to themselves immediately that this would be a very unconstitutional thing. And anyone can see that because mm-hmm. it's, it was, hold on, I'm going to scroll back up in my notes because it's the right of citizens in the United States to vote shall not be not denied or abridged by the United States by any way on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And even, even the racist lawmakers were like, okay, this definitely violates that. Mm-hmm. So in realizing that this wasn't going to stick before it was going to get to a higher court eventually and get struck down, they're like, okay, we have to get as many white people registered under the grandfather clause as fast as possible before they strike it down. So they go on like a mm. registration blitz basically. And they're just like, you get registered and you can vote and you can vote. And it's a form of party politics as well. It is very much an attempt to get people to vote to, to indoct, not indoctrinate, but to disenfranchise people who are going to vote against those Southern lawmakers Mm -hmm. against their party. Um, the outcry was nowhere near where it should have been. Um, because most of the people that were affected negatively did not have the funds to fight it. You have to hire a lawyer. You have to find a lawyer who's willing to take on like the state legislature on behalf of a person of color. Like it's a very difficult issue but eventually the NAACP which wasn't created until after the turn of the century around like Mm -hmm. I think I think like 1909 or something like that is when the NAACP was formed um but it wasn't until 1915 that Gwynn versus the United States happens which officially ruled grandfather clauses as unconstitutional and um it's very interesting because they didn't say anything. The Gwynn versus the United States didn't really say anything about like 
actual restrictive laws. It was just the grandfather clause that they were like, oh, no, this part sucks. Like, all the other stuff, yeah, like, whatever. But the grandfather clause, man, how dare you let hmm. some people vote under this but not others. Um, and so... There's still literary tests, liter sorry, literacy tests, and a ton of other things in the way. But in this case, the grandfather clause wouldn't help white people get past it. And the southern states are still freaked out, like, oh, this is going to disenfranchise our white voters. Even the ones that we've already tried to get past the first round of grandfather clauses and everything that we already gave their registration to in that first little blitz. So... Racists are going to be racists. And when the Supreme Court itself declares the grandfather clause unconstitutional, they create a grandfather clause for the grandfather clause. <laughs> I know what'll solve this. Another <laughs> Make one. Make it worse. <laughs> Double it and pass it on. Um, Oklahoma does it first. Not surprised. Um... So, like, if your state already had a grandfather or if you, clause. If you got grandfathered in under the first grandfather clause, you're fine. Okay. <laughs> you, oh, you're kind of staring okay. at this just going, like, what the hell, guys? Okay. Um, All right. <laughs> and it, it's it's almost laughable because, like, wow, that's the stupidest thing ever. But it worked. Like, mm. all these white people are still able to vote and they can keep disenfranchising people of color. Um, and this, this system that they're forming with the, that secondary clause, the grandfather to the grandfather, essentially, it sticks around until 1940. Yeah. In Oklahoma. It, it lasts way too long. So any, so anyone who was basically given the registration to vote when the first grandfather clause was passed retained their ability to vote even if you know it yeah and everyone who didn't what what the kicker is is that anyone who didn't get the right their registration under that first grandfather clause permanently lost their ability to vote mm. like they couldn't register later under you know once they could pass the literacy test or whatever like once they couldn't get it and they were done mm -hmm. so it's like a whole generation that you've permanently managed to get rid of and we see this a lot in the southern states because the southern states don't like people like Abraham Lincoln. And African-Americans, freed people, tended to be pretty loyal to Abraham Lincoln because even though he wasn't anti-racist, he was the one that signed the Emancipation mm -hmm. Proclamation and, in many people's eyes, won the Civil War. And the Dixiecrats in the South weren't, were like, what, what can we do to keep our white voters who will vote for us while getting rid of our black voters who will vote for Lincoln. So this is as much about party as it is about racism too. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a trend we see even now. Um, so 1915 is the official date that the Supreme court has declared the grandfather clauses unconstitutional and that it violated the 15th amendment. But we don't get the voting rights act that blatantly gets rid of every, mm -hmm. like the, you know, poll taxes, all that stuff, yeah. until 1965 under Lyndon B. Johnson's administration. Yeah. Yeah. Congress was finally then able to all-out ban voter manipulation. And again, that's not to say that it ended. Hence the civil rights movement that's like still pushing because, yeah. like Cal and I were talking about, there's places in Texas where there's still very blatant 
preventative measures taken against people who tend to be of minorities and everything. But yeah, well, in obviously minorities, but also just like anyone who could potentially vote not Republican. Yeah. You know, like Uh, the lower socioeconomic tendencies, The, the, the people, the groups that vote more left. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason that might be. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really great way to put, way to put it. Um, and voter intimidation itself, we could talk whole episodes about that between, you know, people standing in lines outside of the ballot boxes, people now who stand with guns around polling mm-hmm. places. And the fact that lynchings in the South were terrible for so long that like, yeah, no, you're not going to want to like, you're not going to risk it to go vote. Yeah. Like why, no. why would you, it's not worth dying for. No. Um, but plenty of people thought it was, and that's where the civil rights movement really kicks in is people who are willing to risk their lives to gain, to fight and win their basic rights. Yeah. But, um, poll taxes themselves were only explicitly banned during, in the 24th amendment, which was passed in 1964, which was the year before the voting rights act. Mm -hmm. So like, this is, this is a recent thing. Yeah. I I don't know if my parents are okay saying with me saying how old they are, but one of my parents <laughs> was born in 65. Yeah. Like, yeah. the year one of my parents was born was the year that the Voting Rights Act was passed that made this actually, like, right. a federal issue. Yeah. And that should feel... If it doesn't give you a feeling for how how, how recent this is yeah, this it, is not it like should. oh that was so long ago we're all better now yeah because we're so we're so no. not and it's estimated that until but like before the 1965 voting rights act was passed voting um aged african-americans had only 23 percent registration mm-hmm. that is less than a quarter of the entire african-american community that was eligible to vote Soon after the Voting Rights Act passed, that increased to about 61%. Wow. So that's, it's very obvious that, like, once you have those federal protections, and those federal protections don't just say, like, hey, don't do this, but say, hey, if you do do this, this is your punishment, this Mm -hmm. is what you could face, these are the fines, like, gave actual finite standardized punishments and stuff like that, it's huge. Because there's actually some level of consequence for preventing them from voting and stuff. Mm-hmm. So um I did want to note that there's also a way that immigrants handle their voting rights and then were, were handled with their voting rights in the north because we do see a form of grandfather clauses up there possibly even before we are looking at the south. It kind of depends on how you're looking at them if you're looking at like actual like laws versus just things going on at the polls Mm -hmm. um but we do in some states in the north see really large groups of immigrants coming in um and literacy tests and such were not uncommon there because those people were trying to manipulate the vote in favor of one party and immigrants tended to vote against those things so it was it was prominent in massachusetts and connecticut um you know, because immigrants tend not to speak English that perfectly upon arrival. Um, yeah. Fancy that. Um, Checks out. Yeah. Um, 
and that was really intended to knock out many of the immigrants who tend to vote Democrat up north when most of the northern areas up there were trying to remain loyal to Lincoln and the Republicans. Mm. So it's, it's, it's the South kind of takes the cue from up there and how it worked. They just did it on like this massive, even bigger scale than ever before. Mm-hmm. And it's really sad to see so many methods of voter discrimination still active, but it's scary because people of color are disproportionately charged with felonies. Mm-hmm. Um, same crimes often are given worse, like, 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 like longer sentences and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can look online at which states do which, but there are lists for, um, felony prevention of voting which essentially says like which states only prevent you from voting while you're serving time for a felony which states prevent you from voting while you're serving time and on parole Mm -hmm. which states like try to give you like an all-out ban for like a certain amount of years so every state does it differently because that part of the whole like how long does your felony charge prevent you from voting that varies state by state Mm -hmm. but in states like florida if they were attempting to find a way to disenfranchise teachers young who like yeah especially young teachers who want to make their classrooms Mm -hmm. more acceptable and would probably tend to vote more like democrat and more left especially because teachers fall into a socioeconomic class that Mm -hmm. is usually not super rich um it's very scary because when we talk about voter disenfranchisement and voter prevention and stuff it's very blatant through history it's Mm -hmm. very obvious through history And so stuff like this, grandfather clauses, all of that voter manipulation, we have to be very aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's kind of why I chose to talk about this a little bit today. Yeah. Because it doesn't get cleared up until the 1960s. And the fact that also there are certain things in the South that now get you a felony that are healthcare. Um, I'm talking about women's access to... um, reproductive health and certain other things that are like it's, it's just really scary to see states still using the same old techniques yeah to discriminate and prevent people from being able to vote in their own best interests yeah yep and the threat it still poses yep so hmm. what, a, what a lovely world we live in yeah so that's the yeah. brief history behind the grandfather clause that's good thank, thank you, you for letting it's, us it's know like that. It's hard because the grandfather clause in itself is really just a law that allowed, that was made to allow white people to vote in the midst of voter discrimination, but it ties too closely into all those other things like voter intimidation and poll taxes to Mm -hmm. not talk about them. So it's kind of a convoluted issue. Well, it's like you can't just, I mean, you can't just talk about one without the others because there was was such a widespread thing and it was like, you know, uh, there's probably, it was good that you mentioned all of this. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Okay, well, is it time for a break? Yeah, yeah. Whew. Let's take a break, y'all. My brain was a little, my brain's been a little fried all weekend. Uh, also warranted. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you did great, all things considered. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. So, what are we gonna recommend this week? So I don't know if we recommended it. I have a backup in case we did recommend it. But did we recommend The Last of Us yet? I don't know if we have. Because I feel like that could be from both of us. Oh, We're watching yeah. it together. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so good. I'll I recommend mean, the TV show. You can recommend the video game. Yeah, there we go. I mean, I have been a fan of the video games for a long time. And so the TV show, seeing it, like, one, it's just a good TV show. But two, it'd be so faithful to the games and mm-hmm. just really appreciate it. 
as source materials because i feel like someone pointed this out on tiktok but like a lot of problems that a lot of adaptations are having nowadays is that the creators of whatever they're adapting it to don't really care about the source material. Yeah. They like are just Witcher. like, yeah. So mad. Um, so mad. Witcher. Some of the Star Wars stuff, some of the Game of Thrones stuff, like they just don't care about their source material. Don't talk to me about Thrones. Yeah. And so it's like, it's so refreshing to see a show that really appreciates where it comes from and understands the story that it's trying to tell. And like there are changes made and there always has to be, because if you want to just see the game, just go play the game, you know? Um, Well, I have to be careful how I say this because I, as Cal knows, and as many of y'all know, I get super bad motion sickness. So they actually have a, um, a like movie, from the game they like made pulled like the important cutscenes oh, cool. out of the game maybe i need to find and they it made it's like on youtube okay yeah they made like a full length like a feature length film of oh, the game okay. yeah so i don't know if that would help but since it's cutscenes and not like moving around that might help me yeah. yeah i might look at that because i i've mentioned it i think on here before but i get really motion sick from anything with uh, like visual distortion so video games are almost impossible for me to like even watch people play them so i can't watch playthroughs or anything like that um, which sucks because I think I'd love video games. You totally would. But from what I've heard over the last few years that many, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but many adaptations have been bad because there's, like you said, they're so focused on like the parts of the game that aren't like the storyline yeah. and to have someone who like involved in the creation of it that is genuinely so concerned about like, yeah. the storyline. And from yeah. what I can tell, they changed a couple things for the show, but they made but it a good been, story. Yeah. Well, it's it's all choices that need to be made yeah. in order to make an adaptation that's more dynamic. Mm-hmm. You know, because some things, like when you're in a video game and you're like dying 20 times because you can't get past this right. level. Like, it's not, like you can't put that in a show. So yeah. you have to like, but all of the choices they're making is, you know, a game is about well, nowadays, a game is about the story that the game wants to tell, but also the playing part of it. Mm-hmm. And um, in an adaptation, you're just having the story. So instead of filling the time with like, ooh, here's some levels where you're shooting zombies, mm-hmm. it's let's take the time to explore these side characters' backstory and like really think about what this could be and like what and like build out a fuller world. Mm-hmm. And so it's a lot of fun getting to see like those things happen and all of that stuff. Okay. So. So yeah, I'll yeah. recommend the TV show. You can recommend the video game. Yeah. Um, I was actually going to recommend Minecraft. Because oh, do that then. <laughs> as anyone who, well, I'll also recommend The Last of Us. It's a video game week, I guess. As anyone who's ever played Minecraft, you know you go on like a two-week binge, um, mm. and then you like don't touch it for a while, and then you go on another two-week binge. That's the first um, game that ever made me realize how motion sick I get. A lot of Minecraft people have a hard time with Minecraft yeah. specifically, yeah. Um, more so than a lot of other games. Mm-hmm. I've heard more about Minecraft than anything else. Um, but... I am on a two-week binge, and nice. if you do play Minecraft, you'll know how crazy this is. I just started a new game, um, a new world, literally spawned in, not even, like, 500 blocks away. There's a freaking, like, woodland mansion. I'm losing my mind. I've never <laughs> even found one before. That means nothing to you, Kat, Does and not. I know that, but it's, like, a really, really, really rare thing. I don't know what it means, but I'm really happy for you. Yeah, <laughs> and I was, like, no way. And you have to, like, go in there, and you have to beat, beat a bunch of guys, and so I'm, like, obviously just starting this world so i'm nowhere near prepared for that um but i was like you're kidding me because i've never even found one and to spawn in right next to it nice crazy so i don't know i'm pretty excited um that's what i did for a lot of hours last night that's awesome (laughs) that's great i love that and 
yeah so anyway i guess that's my turn nice. oh i will re- i will note uh last of us does have some mature themes language and nudity in it but it's all very brief yeah yeah so no, it's, it's it's a good rule of thumb we've said it before but with any recommendation look at your trigger warnings from yeah. us use from your anywhere own else yeah if there's sing- topics that are sensitive to you you know better than we know what those are so i won't lie it's yeah. a little at some parts a little odd to watch a apocalyptic tv show in this situation situation because i was like oh especially when it's so based around like illness and disease yeah "Uh uh-oh also when it takes place in texas it starts in texas and you're like oh yeah yeah we've been to those places i know it's like like, okay but yeah. yeah Okay. Okay. Awesome. Well, so I'm ready for yours. One. So I, I'm doing a bio today because oh. I was poking around and trying to figure out what I want to do. And since topics are being like broad overreaching right. topics are being banned, not like specific things, I guess subjects is a better word instead of like specific topics. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, let me poke around. Um, and one of the first things I heard specifically about the college board um conversation is because college board and as a part of the ap african-american studies curriculum um wanted to include queer black history because nice um those two kind of have gone hand in hand for a lot of time like mm-hmm. obviously um stonewall marsh p johnson like mm-hmm. all of that that was a black woman so uh, very very interconnected and the one of the first things i saw about that was ron desantis i think it was him or like someone commenting on it being like are you kidding me queer back black history you're telling me that's essential yes (laughs) yeah especially if you're in like an advanced placement of an advanced placement course yeah um so anyway i was poking around and looking for different people from queer black history or for like different moments and all of that stuff. And you did Stonewall. So I was like, Captain mm-hmm. Stonewall. So um, not going to do that one. And I also really wanted to find one that would really just emphasize how frustrating and disappointing this kind of ban is. Because mm-hmm. obviously all of those people are very significant in history. But like one that like when you hear his story, despite him being a queer black man, you're like, how could you take this person out of that? curriculum you know so i am going to do a biography of a man named bayard rustin (gasps) he's been on my list i'm so glad you're doing him i'm so glad i actually never heard of him okay yeah so i was like oh my god this man is insane Mm -hmm. like oh my god he's like prolific yes Um, oh my gosh i'm so glad you're doing so yeah okay good 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 um it is kind of a lengthy one so i'm gonna talk fast and try to get through it um but yeah so Bayard Rustin, he was born on March 17th, 1912 to his parents, Florence and Archie, Ho- uh, Florence Rustin and Archie Hopkins. Um, for whatever reason, I didn't find any reason given. Well, actually, that's a lie. I don't know how proven this is because I did see it in one source. It mm-hmm. said that only in one source. It said that he was raised thinking his mother was actually his older sister. So since it was 1912, it might have been one of those things where they were trying to like not yeah you know yes the shame the shame and the, the, fa- the shame like, public and the public act, yeah. and like making sure their daughter has a future and like all of this stuff um so i'm not sure how true that is but that's it whatever way it worked out he was actually raised by his grandparents and he was the ninth of 12 children raised by them oh my gosh yeah um his grandparents names are it's j-a-n-i-f-e-r is it like jennifer i, I think, think it's, it's jennifer it's, 
it's the man it's the grandfather's name jennifer yeah jennifer i was like yawn i don't know (laughs) um jennifer and julia rustin and they're from westchester pennsylvania which is right outside of philly um which is funny because today is super bowl sunday and the philadelphia eagles are playing so who are they playing (laughs) they're playing uh the kansas city chiefs nice so rustin uh they grew up um his grandmother was a very devout Quaker actually which I thought was really interesting, interesting. Um, I didn't hear much about his grandfather but I did hear his mother or his grandfather uh, blah, blah, grandmother mentioned several times about like her Quaker faith and everything hmm. and since he was raised in her household he also was kind of raised Quaker and um, it said that really influenced like the rest of his life and his beliefs um, so it's something to keep in mind his grandparents were also very involved in the NAACP. So <laughs> Interesting. nice, nice segue there, Kat, um, which meant that like people like W.E. Du Bois and James Weldon Johnson and other like high level NAACP people were frequent at their house, not just like came for dinner once, like frequently visited. That's, that's so like, cool. He was raised with all of these people around him and his grandparents being active members and all of this stuff. And I just can't imagine like that would have. Wow. So cool. Yeah. Um, so, uh, with all of these influence combined, it's no surprise that when he was very young, he started campaigning and being involved against, uh, in movements against, uh, Jim Crow law specifically because he was born in again, 1912. Um, so all of that is very much affecting him and his upbringing, um, he actually says that, like, because I mentioned at the top that he was, he he is a gay black man. And he, um, it's really interesting because we have a lot of quotes from him talking about it. Um, and he says that he realizes it pretty young. He says that when he, like, kind of looks back on it, that one of the first times that he realized his sexuality without realizing it mm-hmm. was um, when he was a kid. And he told his grandmother that he preferred to spend time with males rather than females and to which she responded quote i suppose that's what you need to do (laughs) so (laughs) okay um that's like for him looking back like that's one of his first like times when he's like oh it was always there you know Mm -hmm. so he goes to westchester high school and he graduates from there um in 1932 he enters wilberforce college which was a historically black college in ohio that was operated by the American Methodist, or the, sorry, the African Amer- Methodist. No. Oh, God. I was like, you got to remember this because I didn't feel like writing it down. But it was like the African <laughs> Methodist, and then I forget what the E stands for. Anyway, it's operated by a church, like that is for specifically like a black congregation church. So a black university with black church. Awesome. Good stuff all around. Um and he was very involved. He had, he was in frats. He was in a number of organizations, like very, very involved. He was actually expelled from Wilberforce College hmm. in 1936. So like four years later, probably right before he graduated, because he organized a strike. <laughs> and this, this is just the beginning of this guy's like prolific striking an organization career because oh my god i kept reading and it just like one after another i was like dude we're here for this um so he goes on to uh attend cheney state teachers college which is now cheney university of pennsylvania um and they actually in 2013 honored him with a posthumous doctorate of human 
sorry, Doctor of Human Letters degree. So he has a posthumous doctorate degree from this university, which is fun. I don't know if I've ever heard of Doctorate of Letters. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know what that's oh, kind of cool. Humane Letters. It's interesting. So he actually, <clears throat> interesting enough, while he's at the school, and again, Quaker was a big part of his upbringing, and I believe he does identify, well, maybe not explicitly, but like he's, he enjoys being a Quaker and like agrees with a lot of what they have to say. So he goes to an activist training program conducted by the American Friends Service Committee, AFSC, which is a branch of the Quaker movement. Okay. They offered an activist training program, which is fascinating. That is really interesting. I mean, I'm not surprised, actually. Quakers are kind of cool. Quakers are. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Historically, they've done some really, really, like, they've been a very influential part of history. I know. And they're just like, we don't talk about them enough at all. We really don't. We talk talk about them sometimes in, like, revivalist movements, but they don't. Right. But, like, we mentioned that, oh, they exist, but we don't go past that to be like, this is how they affected, you know, these things. So, um, after he completes his program, he moves to Harlem in 37 and starts studying at another university, this time the city college university of New York, or sorry, city college of New York. Um, there he actually is when we really first see his civil rights connection start. Um, he's had some like, well, obviously raising and like being involved in the NWCP, it's always been there, but this is when we really see it kind of take off because around this time there was the incident of the Scottsboro boys. Do you know who they are? I don't, I, maybe I've heard it in passing, but I don't think I can identify what that yeah, is. Yeah. I, so I like it. Like when I was reading, when I was doing the notes, it like triggered something, but it not like, yeah, I couldn't identify it either, which seems like something that you might actually be interested in doing. So this is uh, nine young black men in Alabama who were accused of raping two white women and, of course, all given unfair trials and all of this stuff. So he, some of his first kind of going into, like, um, being in the civil rights movement for black people specifically is in the um, efforts to defend and free these nine young black men out of Alabama. Okay. Does that make sense? Scott yeah. Bo- yeah. Um, also at this time, um, one thing that's very fascinating and I did not know, and I did have to like take a minute to pause and go read another article, um, is the connection that Soviet Russia has with the American civil rights movement. Looks like I'm doing some reading tonight too. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I can kind of see. If you but- Google just like. Soviet Russia and American civil rights. There's a lot of really good articles that just come up like right there. Okay. Um, and it kind of explains it, but it is fascinating. So we already know that like around this time, especially a lot of like civil rights leaders are, they identify as socialists or communist. And that's again, something that we don't talk about in schools and something like an advanced placement African American mm-hmm. history class would cover. But of course, yeah. You know, um, all of that stuff. But, uh, so he joins the Young Communist League for a, a couple years, and he pretty quickly becomes disillusioned with this party, and so he kind of moves on from them. Um, but it's just, it's fascinating. And one thing, and I'll come back to it later, but I'm going to put the pin in the Communist Party discussion, because it's not just like American Communist parties, because that makes sense to me. Yeah. It's Soviet Russia specifically backing American Communism parties in civil rights movement efforts and i'll get to that in a couple points so we'll come back to that 
Um, anyway, so also during this first couple years in New York City, he um, actually becomes a member of the 15th Street meeting of the Religious Society of Friends, which are the Quakers. Um, so he does officially join kind of like the Quaker movement for himself. Um, fun fact, he was a very accomplished tenor vocalist, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> and he, um, this actually offered him a lot of really kind of high level connections um, in the late 30s and early 40s. So he actually was in the chorus of a very short lived Broadway musical called John Henry. Um, that's called Par- starred Paul Robeson. Uh, he also was um he during this time he meets a blues singer who invites him to join like a gospel group and so all of this stuff man. yeah so all of this stuff and like making all of these connections he's specifically making connections in greenwich village which is mm. the village mm-hmm. and all of that nightlife and it's you know, at the time, the village is really a place for minorities of all types, you know? Yeah. And so he's making connections, doing this kind of, like, what seems kind of like a side quest for him. He's like, oh, yeah, I do this on the side sometimes. <laughs> I just perform with some of the best. Yeah. <laughs> so all of those things. And it's important because, like, it's just incredible to think about, like, how many people that have become so influential to our history moving through those spaces, you yeah. know? And it's also kind of, like... I don't think a place like that really exists in the physical world anymore. You know, like there's no place like the village in New York where mm. it's kind of like, or yeah. like Harlem, like the whole Harlem Renaissance and like all of, of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's hard. Like I'm trying to think of a place that is an equivalent, but I, I don't think we'll ever see quite that equivalent again because it's such a it's unique online. context. Yeah. Well, in, in that time with, the movements being what they are and the context of America around them, I don't think we yeah. have a space like that and we will never again. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. Yeah, which is crazy to think about and pretty sad. Um, That's not to say there's not phenomenal, you know, communities of creation Oh, like absolutely. That. It's just yeah, that no. there'll never be one quite like that because yeah. the world is different now. The world is very different. Um, I mean, like, there's arguments to be made for LA, but, like, specifically, like, a meeting of people who are entertainers that become influential yeah. people who are political who become influential people who like all of these branches of life coming together and like coming out of that it's just like you could get pockets of that you yeah. know but nothing that's kind of all encompassing like that anymore yeah. so at this time around the early 40s well specifically they kind of started in 28 and i'll get to this this is a quote from i believe it was a vox article that i was explaining this um the Soviet, like, Soviet Russia is like, hey, we might be able to use this to our advantage a little bit. And so the article says, quote, it was a part of a plan put in place in 1928 by um, the Communist International Group, whose mission it was to spread communist revolution around the world. The plan initially called for recruiting Southern blacks and pushing self-determination in the black belt. By 1930, this organization had escalated the aims of its covert mission and decided to work towards establishing a separate black state in the South, which would provide it kind of a foothold in America for spreading a communist revolution in North America. So Soviet Russia sees the beginnings and the first stirrings of the civil rights movement and is like, hmm. Let's jump in. We can use this to our advantage, which is so fascinating. Like. It's the long game. It is. Um, And so this is, and and that's kind of like a bullet point as to like 
hmm, interesting. And this is a big reason why um, Rustin becomes kind of disillusioned with the Communist Party in America, like the organization that he joined, Mm -hmm. because he's seeing this influence from Soviet Russia, and he's like, I don't really like where this is headed, so I'm going to jump ship. Yeah, so that's just a little tidbit note, um, and I would love to know more about that. So he kind of switches gears, and instead of communism, he joins, or he starts working with members of the Socialist Party of Norman Thompson. Um, Specifically, he starts working with a man named A. Philip Randolph, and so he's joining this Socialist Party and meeting all of these people again. There's so many names in this, and I'm like, I... Okay. <laughs> it's a lot of people. Yeah. And so eventually he joins up and gets a mentor and the by um gets mentored by a man named A. J. Must, who is a leader of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is another socialist organization. Um this FOR actually hires Rustin as a race relations secretary in the summer of forty one. Okay. So as early as forty one, this FOR organization proposes a march on Washington. You said it's as early as 1941? 41. Interesting. They're like, we should do this. Okay. They want to specifically do this to protest the racial segregation in the armed forces. Obviously, we have a major world event happening at the same time like that or right right now in 41. Um, and as we, some of us might know, like, black people were kind of, expected to fight but weren't expected given any of the rights or privileges yeah, uh, you know yeah. as as yeah. racist america yeah. has done yeah so it's like oh you can fight in our war and you can die for us but like you cannot use the same bathroom as me yeah yeah, yeah. so they the way you said that i'm yeah. like god it sounds so stupid all the time but like when you said it like that i was like <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um so they proposed this march to uh you know pro- protest that they were like, okay, they were thinking about it. So they actually go so far and they managed to meet with President Roosevelt himself in the Oval Office. This organization has a formal meeting. Uh, the man I mentioned earlier, um, Philip Randolph, is kind of telling them like, hey, we're going to do this unless you desegregate the military. Like, it's going to happen. Okay. And you're going to have a, you know, a, a march big, on Washington big during... A war when you need kind of your whole people to be united in this war front, you know, That's a pretty especially big, yeah. during World War II. Um, and this apparently got taken seriously. Uh, after that, Roosevelt issues the Executive Order 8802, which is the Fair Employment Act, which bans discrimination in defense industries and federal federal agencies. And so as a show of good faith, they're like, OK, thank you for doing that. We're not going to do this march anymore. Um Rustin actually still wants to do it because it doesn't really happen. It's this executive order, but nothing really kind of actually happens as far as desegregating the military until 1848 with the last group in the military to fully integrate being not being until 1960. And guess what that is? The Marines. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Huh. So the Marines are the very last the organization last. in the military to completely integrate, and it took them until 1960. Even though this executive order was signed in 41. That's way too long. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Uh, so, after this, Rustin actually, he goes to California, like, during wartime. He goes to California, and he, with this organization, FOR, to protect the property of the more than 
120,000 Japanese Americans who had been sent to internment camps. So him and his organization go to California to make sure that these people's homes and properties are safe while they are forced into internment camps, which is just fascinating. I There are so many like facets mm-hmm. of American history that like we get when you think of like the big picture, you think about Yeah. <sighs> You think about people in internment camps, you think about how terrible that was, like, mm-hmm. what what life was like for them, but then, like, people who do, like, the, not unnoticeable and not unimportant, because it's a very important thing, but people who, like, use their power to a... It's just this, like, little thing that made such a big difference in the exactly lives it. of people that expected it. I think it's seeing unexpected unexpected pieces of kindness because Mm -hmm. like it'd be easy to not easy but like it'd be more well i don't know how to describe it like it's because there's so many big movements there were people that were protesting it and going against it and speaking against it but like people who actually found i think it's the people who found a way to actively contribute because like we were talking about today there's so much that goes on in the world that you feel so hopeless Mm -hmm. you know like what can you do to help and there's people that like managed to find like ways to contribute that you wouldn't have thought of as viable Mm -hmm. ways to contribute but they're so important yeah absolutely um and this i think is is really heartening to see because a lot of times we we as a society paint all of these different kind of social struggles to be in different things and how mm-hmm. black people only wanted, only fought for their own liberation. Asian people only fought for their own liberation. Mm-hmm. Gay people only fought for their own liberation. And it's, it's so like, true. that is so not true. Like we have always been a connected people and especially minorities are going to reach out and help other minorities and mm-hmm. see the struggles that they face and be like, this should not be happening to any of us. And I'm going to go do what I can mm-hmm. To help prevent this from happening. And unfortunately, there are so many moments in history where... And, and I mean, minorities by nature tend... You'd think they'd stick together, but there are instances like yeah. with the women's suffrage movement yeah. early on. Like, Frederick Douglass advocated for women, but a lot of the white women abandoned him and betrayed him. Yeah. And, and, and gave up their African-American allies because they were so focused on their own pursuit that they were willing to ignore them. And yeah enfold in their own favor and it's you're right like so many communities have fought together but the mm-hmm. way we talk about it especially in public classrooms is so you know it's it, that's why it's important yeah. to talk about black history more than just in february yeah. because it's interlaced through well, our and whole then, history yeah absolutely and that's why you know people like kimberly crenshaw being banned and from mm-hmm. classrooms she is kind of like the person who did the damn thing and yeah came up with the, the term intersectionality yeah like, she is the reason why we have that conversation. Because you were not just one thing. You were a combination of things. And that all affects mm-hmm. how you move throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this guy wasn't Asian, but he was a minority. And he understood the struggles that, like, oh, my God. Yeah. They're being forced into camps. Let me go help them how I can. Yeah. You know? And it's like, you're not just one thing. And even if you aren't, you don't have those those identities don't affect you personally like you can understand the struggles that other people face too it's empathy yeah absolutely so um actually during this um kind of movement in california and this whole kind of 
support that they offered them. He was pretty instrumental in the organization of that happening. Rustin was. And so he actually gets promoted to the FOR secretary for student and general affairs. And so he gets like, they're really impressed with how well he was able to handle that. And they're like, okay, yeah, we're going to move you up in our organization. I would also be very impressed Mm -hmm. with someone who did that. Yeah. Um, So after they leave California, he gets a little wind of something that's happening um, around the country in 1942. <clears throat> he joins uh, and was, in fact, a pioneer in the movement to desegregate inter- interstate bus travel, a.k.a. the Freedom Riders. <laughs> so if you want to know more about the Freedom Riders as a whole, you can listen to Kat's last episode. And I was like, oh, my God, she literally just talked about this. But this is one of the people who did it. So in 1942, he boards a bus in Louisville, um, Kentucky, that is bound for Nashville. And he sits in the second row. Um, and, of course, as we know, that's not really allowed. Black people were regulated to the back seats because – Apparently that mattered for some reason. Because racism. Yeah. I don't I don't know about you guys, but when I rode a school bus and when I was in elementary school, I wanted this in the back because it was like bouncy back there. <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of fun. You go over the bumps, you're like, woo. <laughs> um, so he was asked a number of times to move to the back rows, but he refused because that's the whole point of this. Um, and the bus was stopped by police 13 miles north of Nashville and he was arrested. Um, he said he was beaten and taken to a police station, but was released uncharged. He uh, he talks about this moment in, um, like, what it felt like to be arrested. Because I believe this is the first time he's arrested. Um, and he does it in an interview for a newspaper out of California in 1953. So he says, quote, As I was going by the second seat to go to the rear... A white child reached out for the ring necktie I was wearing and pulled it, whereupon its mother said, quote, don't touch a N-word. And he said that he thought to himself that if he, quote, if I go and sit quietly at the back of the bus now, that child who was so innocent of race relations that it was going to play with me will have seen so many blacks go into the back and sit down quietly that it's going to end up saying, quote, they like it back there. I've never seen anything, anyone protest against it. He said that he owed it. He felt he owed it to that child for not only not only to his own dignity. I owe it so that the child that it should be educated to know that blacks do not want to sit in the back and therefore I should get arrested. Letting all these white people in the bus know that I do not accept that. So he's basically saying, like, Hmm. if I just accept that, Mm -hmm. then this kid is going to grow up thinking that's okay. Yeah. And he's like, I owe it to myself, but I also owe it to this child and other white children to know that, like, Mm -hmm this is not okay. Right. You know? And then he goes on to say, quote, it occurred to me shortly after that, that it was absolutely necessary for me to declare homosexuality because if I didn't, I was part of a prejudice. I was aiding and abetting the prejudice that was a part of the effort to destroy me. So he realizes like he has to stand up for his blackness, but also his gayness because he's like, by not showing that part of myself, it's what you were talking about. It's like normalization, normalization, like, by just accepting it and moving on or like accepting kind of what, how you're supposed to act, you are not helping anyone. And so again, it's a great example of intersectionality about this man had more than one identity that were facing struggles and he felt it was important to represent all of them. So yeah. Pretty cool guy. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So in 42, he assists other FOR staffers um, by the names of George Hauser and James Farmer 
and they formed the Congress of Racial Equality. Rustin was not a direct a direct founder. They said he was more of like an uncle, but this core group goes on to be very, very influential um, and was conceived as a pacifist organization based on the writing of Mohandas Gandhi and like all, you know, nonviolent stuff, very whole thing. Um, he was now involved in these two organizations that are like socialists protesting all of this stuff, both very based in nonviolent and they were all conscientious objectors for the war that was going on. So he like refused to be drafted. Um, they were <laughs> him and other members of FOR and core were convicted of violating the selective service act. And he was imprisoned in Asheville federal p- prison from 1944 to 1946 for that, you know, country conscientious objector thing because he can't dodge the draft (laughs) um so he goes on with both organizations to protest um more and more stuff just around randomly he also um while he's incarcerated organizes for's free india committee and he interesting yeah he goes on after his release because like kind of in between the war and when the civil rights movement really picks up there's kind of a lull in that and so in that meantime he goes on to protest the control of india by the british government so he's like fully protesting british colonialization of india from america and i'm just like what what can't this guy do like he's doing whatever he can because i love people that have like that are influential in their in their protests in in what they're passionate about because like the world needs people who dedicate their lives to a a Mm -hmm. cause but Mm -hmm. i am always fascinated by the people and kind of inspired by them because like I, I, I agree. Like, you have to have a formed opinion on most things. Yeah. Like, there are some things that I'm like, okay, I need to learn more about that before right. I can form and that's an opinion. Okay. Yeah. But, like, the people who don't just fight for themselves, but are willing to fight for everything around them for the right thing, and that I just, I love those people. I know. They're, I know. They're just such important people. I also have. am like, hell yeah, dude. You got some good friends because you were going in and out of prison, and it doesn't seem like you have a job. So, you got some good friends a, taking yeah. care of you. And it's, it's important. Because it's like, there needs to be these people who can just dedicate their lives. And that's mm-hmm. the problem that I think we're facing now is people can't sacrifice their jobs in mm-hmm. order to go fight for things. Have you have you heard the people on like social media talking about how like capitalism is really in more than one way, just a mm-hmm. way to keep lower classes down? Because if you're working oh, yeah. 24-7, you can't, you can't think protest, about it. you can't yeah. fight. Which is a, a lot of people are thinking that's why the George Floyd protests were so huge because it was COVID. And people because were people had time to time sit off. and think, oh, this is awful. Yeah. And go and organize those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Rustin and George Hausler, who I mentioned earlier, form the Journey of Reconciliation in 1947, which was the first of the freedom mm-hmm. rides to test the 46 ruling that Cad mm-hmm. mentioned last episode. So this guy, like, directly did that. And I was like, what? Oh, <laughs> um, so him and so after that, he and Hauser also recruit a team. Oh, so this is sorry, part of that. Um, a 14 men divided equally by race to ride in pairs through Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Kentucky. Um, they were arrested several times. Cat recounts all of this last episode. Um, Rustin spends or serves a 22 day sentence on a chain gang in North Carolina for violating Jim Crow laws for this act. 
Um, and it's not until June 17th, 2022, that a Chapel Hill Superior judge um, dismisses those 47 charges against him. Like, it took Jeez. until last year for him to be exonerated from that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Wait, as in, like, say the year again. Uh, 2022. June 17th. Chapel Hill's Chapel Hill Superior Court Judge Alan Bador, with full consent of the state, dismisses the 1947 North Carolina charges against the four Freedom Riders with members of the exoneries families in attendance <sighs> that got arrested for that. Yeah. That number is way too recent. Oh, my God. It's literally like six months ago. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> In 1948, he travels to India to learn techniques of non-violent civil resistance directly from the leaders of the Gandhian movement. This was part of a conference. It had apparently been organized before Gandhi's assassination, but between the organization and when he got there, Gandhi was assassinated. So, um, Dang. yeah, uh. yeah. Um, between 47 and 52, he meets with leaders of independence movies in Ghana, movements in Ghana and Nigeria. And in 51, he forms a committee to support South African resistance, which later would become the American Committee on Africa. So this guy is like everywhere, everywhere. I love it. So, interesting. In Pasadena, California, in January of 1953, he is arrested for sexual activity with two men. And he was, they were, like, in a car, I think, Mm -hmm. um, from what I saw. Um, In public, you know, engaging in sexual acts, as happens. Um, So, he, this original charge was vagrancy and lewd conduct, because, you know, the homosexuality thing is, like... (laughs) um, Yeah. (laughs) And so... He was charged with this, and he actually pleads, pleads guilty to a lesser single charge of, quote, sexual perversion. So he's officially arrested for this. It's on the books. He pleads guilty to it. Um, and he serves 60 days in jail. And in 2020, California Governor Gavin Newsom grants him mm-hmm. a posthumous pardon for this convention. Um, this arrest was a big deal for him in his career because it's the first time that his sexuality had been kind of aired out in public, which is a pretty big deal because this is 53. Like this is pretty early for that to be happening. Yeah, I was say, yeah. Um, and also because he is such a public figure, even at this point, even before like the civil rights movement has really kicked off. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, and we do see this come up again later. Um, so it's really interesting. Yeah. Like the way they treat like public figures who are, yeah. 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 Um, of course, this is also like the time where you would like get put on a list and put your name in the newspaper and all of this stuff yeah. because you have to protect your kids from these sexual deviants and mm-hmm. all of this stuff. Um, so this is not just like, oh, he got arrested and he got out of jail. This was like big. Yeah. Everyone kind of knew it happened. All of this stuff. And he says later that he was never quiet about his sexual identity, but it's not something he like told the world mm-hmm. because he understood that it was still Admitted, 1950s. Broadcasted. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so he actually ends up resigning from the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the FOR, because of this conviction. And it says that this conviction greatly affected his relationship with the founder of that organization, A.J. Must. Um, or sorry, the director of that organization. Um, apparently Must was kind of aware that 
this was part of his identity and had even attempted to change it earlier in their relationship mm. with no success. So this guy obviously had some prejudice of himself, but for for what it's worth, was willing to overlook them until an actual charge was was still kind of crappy, dude. That's shitty. You shouldn't have done that. Yeah. But like, come on. Anyway, um, so after that, he serves as an unidentified member of the American Friends Service Committee's task force. So this is a Quaker task force. And they publish a paper that's called Speak Truth to Power, a Quaker Search for an Alternative to Violence. And this was one of the most influential and widely commented on pacifist essays in, 19, in the United States. This was published in 55. Okay. And so for this to be published in 55, right on the brink of a huge civil rights movement that right. really employs these ideologies and for him to be an unnamed member of that Mm -hmm. like this guy is everywhere yeah like he is hugely influential um he was the one who actually wanted to keep his participation in this quiet because of his known sexual orientation he was worried that this would be used by critics as an excuse to compromise this pamphlet sent out on like how to do non-violent things Mm. um so pretty unfortunate about all of that kind of stuff so this is around the time when he meets MLK and he actually, the first time they meet, he is in 1956 and he goes to advise him on like basically nonviolent and Gandhian tactics. And he's Mm. just like telling him, Hey, this is how you do this. Like blah, blah, blah. He King himself was organizing a public transportation boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. um, And this is kind of what he leaned on his expertise for. And according to Rustin, he says, quote, I think it's fair to say that Dr. King's view of nonviolent taxes was almost non-existent, non-existent when the boycott began. Interesting. Like Dr. King did not start off as nonviolent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's like that. And he didn't really end up as it either. (laughs) I was going to say, as you listen uh, if you watch Abbott Elementary, um, yeah. the episode last week, um, yeah. they even mention it. Um, all, all these things are very topical. <laughs> yeah. Well, like um, one of the teachers in that he he's talking about Black History Month and everything, and he kind of brings up the fact that like Malcolm X and and Dr. King, like yeah, absolutely. people really don't like associate them with different sides of a movement, but there is a lot more similarity yeah. there than you would like to think. Absolutely. And that it was often portrayed that way to separate veins of thought yeah. and separate the civil rights movement. And it really seems like rustin was the one that brought king over to the nonviolent side hmm. it says that he provides um or he said that he provided king with a deep understanding of nonviolent ideas and tactics at a time when king only had an academic familiar familiarity with gandhi and his kind of nonviolent approach he says he later recalled recalled quote the glorious thing is that he came to a profound profoundly deep understanding of nonviolence through the struggle itself and through reading and discussions which he had in the process of carrying on the protest so interesting it really seems like rustin was a huge influence and what would become you know synonymous with mlk's name Mm -hmm. um again it just shows his like i'm like how have you never heard this about this dude before like he's everywhere He's this huge, massive, like, influence on everything, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, my God. So um, when he goes down to Montgomery to kind of advise uh, MLK in February of 56, he publishes a Montgomery diary after he's there. He writes in this quote, as I watched the people walk away, I had the feeling that no force on earth can stop this movement. It has all the elements to touch the hearts of men. 
So he's like, mm. this is going to go somewhere. And this is 56. This is pretty early, early days. Yeah. yeah. Um, so King not only is impressed with this, like, nonviolent knowledge and all of the stuff that Rustin's put into, like, really understanding the benefits of this movement. And there is something to be said for nonviolence, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but he also is like, okay, this guy's super smart and he's also super well connected yeah he's like this guy's been in all of these organizations he knows all of these people he's done all of these things and so uh, with all of that he invites him to serve as his as an official advisor to him and he does this knowing about rustin's homosexuality and is kind of like fully willing to he's like yeah yeah the important part is your knowledge your ability. And your ability yeah um which is <laughs> pretty progressive yeah for, we love to see it especially someone at the center of this movement mm-hmm. to put yourself at risk like that mm-hmm. and to put, for de- potential delegitimization of what you're doing like that's pretty it's a pretty bold move to take yeah um so as an advisor to mlk rustin did a variety of roles he was a proofreader a ghostwriter a teacher and a strategist like all of these things um so Rustin King began organizing the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, um, the SCLC, and many of the leaders were kind of concerned that, one, his homosexuality, also his past connections for, like, that Bruce Stint in the Communist Party yeah. would kind of, like, do some damage. And they're like, I don't know about this guy. But in a 1960 letter, Dr. King tells a colleague, quote, we are thoroughly committed to the method of nonviolence in our struggle, and we are convinced that Bayard's expertness and commitment in this area will be of inestimable, inestimable, wow, I can't say that, inestimable value. That's a tricky one. That was good. Good job. Uh, So he's like, no, I don't care that he's gay. Like, you don't understand. This guy has so much to offer us. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care what the risks are. Yeah. Which is sucky that it has to be that way, but, like... I, you gotta be yeah. so good at your job that they can't afford to say no to you. Mm-hmm. So after they organize the SCLC, Rustin and King plan a civil rights march um, on the 1960 Democratic, Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles. At the time, uh, there was a man who was a U.S. representative by the name of Adam Clayton Powell Jr., and he did not like this thought that there could be a march on the DNC convention um, in L.A. So he comes up with, the, up with the grand idea to put out rumors that there is a relationship between Rustin and MLK, that they're having a homosexual affair, which obviously in 1960 would be a huge hit to both of their reputations and just not there's no way around that. So in an effort to avoid some of those rumors, they go ahead and cancel that march, which is really crappy. And it's, again, yeah. just that way of, like, now that he's been arrested for it, it just follows him for the rest of his life and, and in a negative way. And it's really unfortunate that that had to happen. Um, so uh, he's kind of doing his thing. And then in 1963, they start talking about doing a march on Washington again. And King's like this guy's got all this knowledge. Also, he almost did this before. Yeah. So I'm going to throw this whole thing to him. <laughs> like, yeah. he was appointed deputy director of the March. And it said that, like, he was basically doing everything. He was basically a director of it. But they didn't want him to put him out, like, the forefront of it because, because of the potential because of risks. Yeah. Because of identity. 
So um, the official name for this march was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedoms, and it was going to take place in 1963. It was going to be a commemoration of the uh, emancipation I can't say anything today. It's okay. You you hit some (laughs) tricky words. The commemoration of the Emancipation Proclamation. (laughs) That's so many things. Um, Which was like a hundred years earlier to, yeah, yeah, that 1963. Yeah. Um, So he had a lot of roles and responsibilities, obviously. Like he organized basically everything. Um, And... Like, he intentionally left himself out of this conversation. He did not want to receive any public credit from for his role in planning this march because he was concerned about delegitimizing it, mm-hmm. you know? And I think he's pretty well aware of his status and the risks that he posed, which, again, is really disappointing. And it's I can't imagine navigating all of those things. Well, you and know? it's sad, too, because, like, someone who does this much should be so much more talked about, but they had... Not yeah. just because, like, people don't want to talk about him. I'm not necessarily... I'm sure there are people that don't want to talk about him now because right. of like his like well it's he's doing it to him he's holding himself back because of this part exactly. of himself exactly he's he's less notable in all this not just he because people be. don't want to admit what he is now but yeah. because at the time he had to remove himself visibly from yeah. it and it's like he's doing everything behind the scenes but this is like the third or fourth time where he's like I'm gonna do all this work but don't credit me for it yeah and it's just so heartbreaking to see like yeah his name should be up there with with everyone everyone else else. but i had never heard of him you know that's why i had him on my list because i was reading a couple articles and i had noted that his name popped up multiple times right yeah and And i was like this guy who's who keeps popping up everywhere as a footnote but in all these different Mm -hmm. things but like hearing you talk and so i had no idea the full impact that he had and now hearing you talk about i'm like that's Mm -hmm. why he's everywhere is because he was everywhere yeah yeah, we just he was he never was. He was acknowledged just... next to the and it big really names. it it really speaks to kind of queer history as a whole, like with mm-hmm. Harvey Milk and like yeah, queer people have always been there, mm-hmm. and they, it's just not visible because they can't be, mm-hmm. and this is or because they the can't perfect even if their name is visible, right? They have to they let their they have to hide. Be, yeah, yeah, and it's just anyway, yeah. So yeah, it's it's. It's pretty frustrating to see someone knowing that they have to hold themselves back because we should really be getting this guy all of the credit and all of the accolades, um, which is why when I was reading about him, I was like, oh, my God, it just keeps going. He's just, yeah. he's just doing it. He's mm-hmm. just everywhere. Um, so and this comes up again. Uh, so even though he takes a bat seat to like some of the public planning aspects of this. A few weeks before the March on Washington in August of that was planned for August of 63, a South Carolina senator senator named Strom Thurmond is like, "Mm, this guy's involved. I'm going to discredit this whole thing. And so he railed against Rustin as a, quote, communist draft dodger and homosexual three things wow what a- maybe not communist isn't true but like yeah yeah <laughs> but like this time i'm like hell yeah like me 2023 being who i am i'm like this guy rocks but everyone in the 63 was like, like oh gosh <laughs> um so and he like airs this the whole of an incident that had happened in pasadena california and all of this stuff uh he actually uh, the senator was also able to produce a FBI um, photograph of Rustin talking to King while King was in the 
like in the bathtub like while he was bathing <laughs> and so the senator uses this picture that the fbi had gotten um probably against both of their wills okay, i don't think it's something that willingly they would have no. given. um to imply that they were in some sort of relationship again the same thing that had that other guy from california had tried to do in 1960 um and to okay. i guess delegitimize them because they were like oh they're gay <laughs> um, and they were like no <laughs> like okay dude okay and so wow. they both de- they're like they're both denying this um and it doesn't seem like you know obviously it affected them at all because <laughs> the march was very well attended obviously yes um so he had basically two months to plan this whole march on washington and it became one of the largest movements and obviously like one of the most iconic mm-hmm. parts of the civil rights movement as a whole Two hundred thousand participants go to the nation capital to protest for civil rights there's the whole i have a dream speech like this guy he did it like of course mm-hmm. he had help but like he did it yeah and despite his best efforts to take a backstone or backstone what <laughs> I'm just saying good there. I don't think so. Um, To take a back seat to all of this, he actually, on like the iconic uh, Times cover, I think it is, Mm -hmm. or is it Life? One of those. I think Um, it's Life. Like the picture of like MLK and he's like in the corner or on Mm -hmm. the side. Bayard Rustin is actually in that picture. Oh, wow. So like he manages to make it on the cover. Nice. Like, and I'm glad, like looking at it from 2023 eyes it's reassuring to see that he was able to like at least in that very small way Mm -hmm. get the recognition that he deserved um yeah so after the march uh uh, he was he moves on to do a whole lot of stuff and he actually starts moving in a pretty interesting way politically um in the late 60s and so he kind of identified as a socialist from this whole thing um but he kind of like starts pivoting and he never becomes like super conservative but it's not as like explicitly socialist as we might have seen from him earlier in his career um it's just an interesting thing and maybe he's thinking like okay we tried that let's try other things Mm -hmm. but that doesn't stop him from organizing things in 64 Uh, he is asked to um coordinate a citywide boycott of public schools to protest de facto segregation Hmm. um in harlem so he's invited by leaders in harlem to come coordinate this this (laughs) this <laughs> protest involves more than 400,000 New Yorkers participating in a one-day protest on February 3rd of 1964. That's almost half a million people. Oh my I God. know. It became, like, one of the large. I think, the largest wow. protest that the civil rights movement saw, period. Wow. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> historian Daniel Pearlstein wrote that, quote, newspapers were astounded by both the numbers of black and Puerto Rican parents and children who boycotted and by the complete absence of violence or disorder from the protests. Wow. So this just shows his... How powerful that is. Yeah. ability Mm -hmm. to bring people together and show them, like, this is how... And unfortunately, I don't know if the same thing would work today. Yeah. But it was really, really, really powerful when he did that. Um, newspapers reported that it was the largest civil rights demonstration in American history. And Rustin, Rustin himself said that, quote, the movement to integrate schools will create far-reaching benefits for teachers as well as students. Um, he goes on to organize a uh, May 18th march, which was which called for maximum possible integration. So, like, not just, like, technical 
it's like the de facto versus mm-hmm. de jure integration and all of that kind of stuff. Um, he actually was invited to speak at the University of Virginia in 64, but um, administrators didn't want him to come because they're like, oh, my God, this guy's going to organize a boycott here, too. Um, <laughs> if I was a guest, he walks out like everywhere else. all your students just yeah. walk out with him. Yeah. Um, I would follow him. I'd, I'd be it. like, hell yeah, let's go do it, dude. I feel like this is the kind of guy you'd go to a lecture and halfway through, you're like, this dude is just right. Whatever I he know. tells me to do, and Whatever. then you just do it. I'll be there. I'll follow you, sir. <laughs> Um, for the 1964 Democratic National Convention, he be- actually, so this is when he kind of like takes um, kind of a little foray into politics. I don't think he ever was a politician himself, but as far as like he becomes, he's never not a Democrat, but he kind of lessens on the leftist hmm. qualities of himself. And I think he's trying, it's that debate of what's better, this outside the government action that like socialism kind of requires or working from the inside. Can I change things from the inside? And Mm -hmm. so it seems like he's trying to pivot to make things work from the inside. Um, He actually, uh, so it's like this whole incident where it's like, he's there with um, an organization that was like some, an organization out of Mississippi that wanted to be there and they were afforded, just two seats whereas other organizations were it was the mississippi freedom democratic party the mfdp and they were only afforded two seats where like other organizations were or afforded like a lot and like other people in his organization this organization wanted to make like a deal about it but he was like no Mm. let's just be glad we're there um and this mfdp had like big high name people like fannie lou hamer that were connected to it so um they were like, mm, no, but Rustin kind of held fast and was like, no, like, let's just take it. Like it's a foot in the door, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so MFDP like didn't like it at all. And they became very suspicious of him and like what his motivations are. But the democratic party leadership was like, Hmm, this is a guy who this dude. Yeah. And this is the frustrating thing about the democratic party is they are way too willing to like compromise, which is why we are where we are yeah. today. Um, and you can kind of see a lot of that here, but they liked him because of this ability to compromise and so he becomes kind of connected to all of the democratic party and he starts like writing essays and advising people and again doing all this backs like not back alley that's not the right word for it but like back behind the scenes there we go mm-hmm. uh, stuff and he's has this huge massive influence um to democratic politicians but he never is a politician himself and again it's just it's so crazy to see how behind the scenes on everyone he was he was an advisor a journalist and he wrote essays and think pieces and all of this stuff um and a lot of people say that he was like taking this was like a more conservative part of his life but one of um a biographer on him actually feels like he never took a more conservative turn that he was still incredibly committed to um social justice he was just making all of those things through a quote-unquote more conventional mm-hmm. way yeah like he's still fighting for universal health care the abolition of poverty and full employment for you know wealth mm-hmm. redistribution and all of this stuff all of those social sorry socialism tenets but just in a, like a more like i said conventional way mm-hmm. um what's interesting too is 
obviously like as we move out of the civil rights era and we have other things happening like Vietnam and all of this stuff, he takes a really interesting stance on Vietnam. Uh, so he supports, he like supports. So he's like kind of a true and true liberal at this point, not necessarily a socialist anymore. So he does support the war in Vietnam because he supports the containment policy of communism. Because again, he doesn't agree with communism. Mm. Um, at least not how Soviet Russia is doing mm-hmm. it at that point. Um, but he is still really critical of the Vietnam War. Uh, it's just like a really interesting stance that he takes. Um, he calls for a negotiated peace treaty and democratic elections in Vietnam, but he criticized the specific conduct of the war. So he's like, yeah, we should do this, but how y'all are doing this is ridiculous and stupid. Uh, it's just like, like, well, what's the other... You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, what's yeah. the other way? So he wrote um, that he was angered and humiliated by the kind of war being waged, a war on torture, a war of torture, a war in which civilians are being machine gunned from the air and in which American napalm bombs are being dropped on the mm-hmm. villages. So he's like, this is, we should be doing this, but I don't like how it's done, which is an interesting stance to take. Um, also, uh, as we move into like the 70s and 80s, he turns again, once again, to the like, plights of other minority groups specifically he focuses on the um how jewish people are being treated in the soviet union um and it says that he or he said that it reminded him of the struggles that blacks faced in the united states um that's a quote from him (laughs) i don't like to use the word blacks but that's a quote from him sorry i should have specified um and he said that like Soviet Jews faced much of the same forms of discrimination in employment, education, and housing in Soviet Russia, while also being prisoners of their own country by being denied the chance to immigrate to other or to being immigrate from the country to the other places. Um, so he becomes a leading voice in advocating for the movement of Jews, Jewish people from the Soviet Union to Israel. Interesting. So he's like super involved again internationally with other minorities facing suffering and i'm like his comments on how it reminded him of the suffering of his own people Mm -hmm. really kind of explains his actions to this point why he went to california why his whole life yeah, yeah exactly like he why he was you know in ghana and nigeria and india why he was doing all of these things for all of these other people because he understand and knew that struggle Mm -hmm. and wanted to help other people not experience it anymore um he chaired the historic ad hoc commission on rights of soviet jews that was organized by the conference of the status of soviet jews um so he this commission collected testimony from soviet jews and compiled them into a report that delivered that was then delivered to the secretary general of the united nations so, like, they're doing, like, he is wow. doing the yeah. work to, like, help people and all of that stuff. Um, and as we kind of wind down to, like, the end of his life here, I wanted to take the time to, like, talk about how he felt about his own sexuality and his own identity. Um, he actually was not involved with any gay rights activisms until the eight, 1980s when he was urged by his partner, a man by the name of Walter Nagel. And he kind of said that, like, he doesn't identify as, like, even though he was a gay activist, he wasn't 
a gay activist, yes. you know, yeah. like he was an activist who was gay, but he was not fighting for gay rights because he was fighting for all of these other things. Like, he too. was kind of busy. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he did a lot. So I'm not blaming, I'm not blaming him one bit for that. Yeah. Um, what's really fascinating is like, as we know, a huge reason why gay marriage was such an important legislative moment for this country is that gay people, even though you could be a partner and you could do like a wedding and have a commitment ceremony Mm -hmm. and all of these things, if you're not married, you can't have like things like your partner can't come visit you in the hospital. Yeah. They can't make end of life decisions for you. They can't insurance. They can't like be the beneficiary of your will like they can't can't buy a house and get like split uh like financial yeah yeah it's all of these things and especially when you know a lot of times gay people are separated from their family and when you have like their actual blood family like Mm -hmm. as recognized by the government coming in and making these decisions for them it's like no, no they wouldn't want that yeah um so that's why gay marriage was such a huge thing but in lieu of that um Rustin and his partner Nagel actually made the decision to for Rustin to legally adopt Nagel as like his child. Oh. And Nagel was like fully grown. He was in his 30s at the time. There was a little bit of an age gap, which like whatever, but like but well, like 30s, he was yeah, 30s you're still Once a you're full in your adult. 30s, yeah. you, you can make informed decisions about yeah. age gaps. But and so even though he was a full adult, they together made the decision to for him to adopt him so that he would have some sort of that's control in over In the lieu of you being prevented from sharing rights as a married couple. Yeah. That's a smart move. I know. I had never heard of that before like i it, it, it gives me a little bit of a uh but like it's kind of weird it's but it's the like situation you, of yeah, it yeah it's, but it's like in you had being to able do to get what married. you had to do yeah. yeah and so nagel says this he says quote he was concerned about protecting my rights because gay people had no protection at that time marriage between same-sex couples was inconceivable and so he adopted me legally in 1982 this was the only thing that we could do to kind of legalize our relationship. We actually had to go through a process as if Bayard was adopting a small child. My biological mother had to sign a legal paper that disowned me. They had to send a social worker to our home. When the social when the social worker arrived, she had to sit us down and talk to us to make sure that this was a fit home. So they did like a full, That's even though really they were both fully grown adults, they had to do this whole thing. That's really interesting. But it, you know, it gave them the ability to have some peace in the fact that like, you know, if one of them died, they would have, or any sort of circumstance that would involve like critical decision making. The estate would be left to his son. Yeah. Not a, you know, right. Interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, and so also in 86, he, uh, testifies in favor of New York state's gay rights bill. He gives a speech called the new N word are in words, are gays, in which he asserted, quote, today, blacks are no longer the litmus paper or the barometer of social change. Blacks are in every segment of society, and there are laws that helped, sorry, and there are laws that help to protect them from racial discrimination. The new in words are gays. It is in this sense that gay people are the new barometer for social change. The question of social change should be framed with the most vulnerable people, vulnerable group in mind, gay people. Well, I don't, I, I think... A lot of our kind of conversation since the 80s has said, like, okay, that's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. At the time, that was kind of the sentiment that, like, okay, black people have earned their rights. And that's – we don't – obviously have not realized the extent to which, like, 
those affected and like things like critical race theory right. and stuff haven't really been talked about on a public scale. So I see where he's coming from, but I do like this last line in this, even though I don't necessarily agree with the whole sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um, this last line was the one where he says the question of social change should be framed with the most vulnerable, vulnerable group in mind. And I think that's, I think that's true. That's the best way to encapsulate what he's saying. He's yeah. not, because you know, there's still so many issues. Right. He's not saying that for, black people are right. Everything's solved and we're all better now. Right. But he's, but saying, he's saying that like there's someone below us on the ladder. And now that we've yeah. climbed up a rung, we've mm-hmm. got to reach down and pull them up with us. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it goes back to him constantly looking at other groups and being like, how can I help you? Yeah. Because he's always, and that's something that he's done throughout his life is how can I help this and next group? I think that's such an important thought process too for society. Like who, not the weakest link, but like who is at the least common denominator for their rights right now? Mm-hmm. Because the society is only strong as the protections that they allow yeah. their, 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 their most deprived minority. Yeah. And absolutely. so yeah. I, I really appreciate it's that like sentiment. The, the quote, what is it? Like we're only strong as the weakest among us or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to, I have a hard time seeing it as like weakest, but I think you're right. Like the yeah. vulnerable, the, the, yeah, the vulnerable circumstantially vulnerable. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And that's, you know, not really applied to social movements that quote, but it's, it's the same yeah. sort of sentiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so all this is really summed up with a quote from one of his former partners that he had, that he was in a relationship with in the forties, a man by the name of Davis Platt. He said, quote, I never had any sense that at all that Bayard felt any shame or guilt about his homosexuality. That was the rare in those days. Rare. So from the forties, from as early as the 1940s, really impressive. he was very confident and that's so impressive. So Rustin does die on August 24th, 1987 of a perforated appendix. Um, uh, the New York Times wrote, writes in his ability, his obituary ability. What am I saying? Um, it's okay. It's been a week. Quote, looking back at his career, Mr. Rustin, a Quaker, once, once wrote, the principal factors which influence my life are, one, nonviolent tactics, two, constitutional means, three, democratic procedures, four, respect for human personality, and five, a belief that all people are one. And I think that's really great. And so in the years since he passed, you know, over 30 years now, there are, I I mean, you can go on his Wikipedia page and it's just bullet point after bullet point after bullet point of all of the honors and all of the retrospectives that have been done on him and kind of realizing, oh my God, this guy was insane Mm -hmm. um so many different centers are made from him quakers really seem to love him and have embraced him they've named several different um lgbtqia like groups and centers and all of this stuff after him specifically that the quakers are producing themselves um august 8 on august 8th 2013 Barack Obama posthumously awarded him a Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest highest civilian mm-hmm. award that can happen. Um, in the press release for this, they stated that, quote, Bayard Rustin was an unyielding activist for civil rights, dignity, <clears throat> and equality for all. An advisor to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he promoted nonviolent resistance, per- participated in one of the first freedom rides, organized the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, and fought tirelessly for marginalized communities at home and abroad. As an openly gay African-American, Mr. Rustin stood at the intersection of several of the fights for equality, for equal rights. And this is powerful, too, because this is 2013. Yeah. Gay marriage is legalized That's, nationally in 2015. Yeah. And so it's really powerful that, like, he was awarded that 
you know, yeah. when he was. And yeah, like I said, there's so many more things and so many more accolades and everything that have everyone looking back on his career was like, oh my God, this guy, we should have been yeah. doing this for forever. Like, oh, um, we've, we have a gap here. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, all of that is Bayard Rustin. Wow. What a guy. And I think you are 100% right that he would be banned in books in Florida. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, and again, it's like that next layer. It's like really weird. And it's like, that's what the whole AP point of that AP class is for is to look at that next layer, you know? Oh yeah. It's like, it's the iceberg thing. He's definitely second layer of the iceberg. And that's what that class should be talking about. And anyway, so I just, yeah, it's very frustrating and, uh, hopefully we're doing what we can (laughs) by offering this. Um, and it just, it's a really reminder of the importance of things that the public can access Mm -hmm. education wise, whether that be Wikipedia, whether that be a podcast, whether that be, yeah, I would say books at your library, but that's not always reliable. Yeah. Um, just in whatever way you can, it's important to learn and educate yourself on all of those different things. Yeah. Yeah. You did a fantastic job. That's a Thank long, you. A very Sorry, important life to cover. This guy had such a big no, life no. and I was like, oh my God. I think cutting it any lower would have done him not done him justice so you did a fantastic yeah. job and yeah. i mean and you're right there's so much stuff that's getting cut and everything so if y'all have stuff that you want to that you is getting cut from your classroom or you're curious about or you just want us to talk about that you feel like you didn't get to talk enough about yeah. please tweet at us please. at t-i-n-a-h-l podcast on twitter we yeah. will you know we love getting requests for topics absolutely or you can email us at this is not a history lecture at gmail.com um yeah and please remember to rate us wherever you can it really really helps us out it's like the number one way we get pushed to new people and all of that stuff Mm -hmm. so we definitely appreciate it every review you leave is one more piece of sushi that cal and i are gonna get (laughs) next time we grab food we did get sushi right before this maybe that's why i can't talk because i'm thinking about sushi (laughs) that was really good (laughs) oh man okay well i hope everyone learned something today yeah Mm -hmm. um Hopefully, we all stay safe and healthy yeah, until the next next episode. Next week won't be so, quite as dramatic, mm-hmm. um, but all they can do is wait, I guess. Yep. So, so until then, thank anyway, you for guys, listening. Thanks for listening. And this is just a reminder that this has not been a history lecture. Bye. Bye.